August 11th, 2021, and you are listening to the latest episode of the Coping the Stacks Music Review Podcast. I am John, and I am joined as always by my fearless co-hosts, Josh and Matt. Let's do an early check-in. Matt, how's life? Oh, it's good. Hey, um, I went to my first post-COVID concert last week. Really? Yeah, I went to, wow. uh, I saw the, I went to the Hella Mega Tour, which was... Uh, Hella Weezer. Mega? The Hella Mega Tour was Weezer and Green Day, oh. um, and a uh, ska band called the Interrupters, I believe. Oh, yeah. Um, they're a good, they're a new band, though. They're not a, a retro act. No, I kind of liked it, too. Ways. I was, I was like, they oh, have a, I, they have an uh, awesome song called She's Kerosene that's I enjoy quite a bit. Did they play that one? I don't know. They all sounded the same. Um, but the, <laughs> no, I like them, though. I was surprised. I was like, ah, it's a ska band. That's whatever. It's no big deal. But no, they were pretty good. And, um, and Fall Out Boy was supposed to play, um, but one of their crew members came down with COVID, so they had to not play. So, However, Rivers Cuomo came out um, to play a Fall Out Boy song, and the entire crowd was singing along with it. And I didn't know it was a Fall Out Boy song because I don't really <laughs> know any Fall Out. Yeah, well, yeah, that too, and I don't know any Fall Out Boy songs. But everybody's singing along and going nuts, and I'm turning to my buddy going, what is this? And he goes, I think it's something off their, you know, the, before their first album. And I'm thinking, you know what, what he, the hell did Weezer do before? I, I kept thinking it was a Weezer song, and then I realized it was a Fall Out Boy song. I'm like, that's why I don't know it. I don't freaking know any Fall Out Boy. You know what would have been the perfect answer for him to say when you said that, Matt? What's so that? Could you, could you say that again? Could you pretend that I was your friend and you asked me that question? I've never heard this song before. What is it? Uh, this ain't a scene, Matt. Oh, it's a... It's a it's a it's a riot riot house. It's it's, it's an arms it's, race, Matt. It's oh, an arms it. race. That's, You're yeah. supposed to, to fill my full joke I, rate. There, I was trying to. Been, yeah. I was trying to, but I couldn't remember. That I just remember makes sense. That title. The century <laughs> of make believe. Well, that's yeah, that's yeah, that's later. <laughs> yeah. That's you know, but they they had uh, what sugar I'm going down. That's the the mm-hmm. other one that I always think of. But yeah, so that's peak nostalgia right there. Fallout Boy, Green Day, and uh, Weezer, yeah, and Weezer, yeah. yeah. And, they were great. Yeah. They were great. Green Day was awesome, man. I, I forgot how much I loved Green Day, and it was one of those concerts where I was just like, oh, I forgot about that song. Oh, I forgot about that. So, uh, um, I imagine great show. Like, lots of cargo shorts and uh, mm. ret- retro tees. Is that what it looked like? What was the, uh, what yeah, was the age was... range at that show also? Actually, it was pretty varied. There were like there were like twelve year old kids there, and then there were dudes that were like in their sixties, you know. Um, so it was a pretty full. We actually commented on that about the uh, the pretty um, the the big range of ages that were there. So, uh, but it was good. I and I I was, but it was pretty crowded. I was walking around, and I was just going. I think I'm just getting a bunch of COVID all over me. Um, you know, it's like weaving what was in, that? What weaving was that? In out between people. What was that place in Massachusetts where they all got? covid even though they were vaccinated from like the, the it was it was in cape province Pod, wasn't it? town province yeah, town fair or something like where yeah. they all crowded into like two bars i guess and yeah so i hope it's not that matt we Me need too. to be healthy yeah i feel i feel good so well you took up a lot of space there how you're feeling matt how's josh feeling today i'm feeling great i'm i'm here in in cts command central i've got <laughs> multiple monitors i'm watching the levels i'm checking concert nearby here i'm doing it all folks and it's josh has great and i'm relaxed yeah josh has a bunch of breweries and a weed shop right next to right next it's door all, so it's all yeah. happening <laughs> <laughs> will you share a picture of the command center josh on socials or are you going to keep that to yourself because you know if you shared it you have to kill us oh no yeah i can do that like, okay. sure 
CTS Command Center is what and we can call it. And then also post a picture of the mobile, the Rolling Stones mobile recording studio that you have up <laughs> on your Zoom background right now, Josh. Okay. Yeah. I'll do that. they look similar? Josh's yeah, Command actually, Center and, Josh, yeah, okay. Josh stole the Rolling Stones uh, mobile studio, and he's, rec- he's broadcasting directly from there right That's now. That's what I drove across country in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like he gets great gas mileage. So I've got a I've got an impromptu uh, quiz for you guys here. I'm gonna, I thought you said you hate impromptu quizzes only yeah. when you spring them on us. Only when, when yeah, yeah yeah. This is just a simple yes or no response. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm unaware. I'm unable to do that, Josh. I think I, yeah. So Bend Bend Amphitheater has a pretty mm-hmm. sweet summer concerts fall concert series, and I'm going to read off some some acts, and you can tell me if I should go to them or not. Okay. Okay. Matt, you can start, and I'll do second. That I'm going to throw in an I don't know because if you throw somebody out there that no, I've never heard it's of, gonna, I'm just going to pick the ones that you guys know. Oh, okay. Okay. Atmosphere with Cypress Hill, August twentieth. No. I, I don't know. Okay. I, I sure Cypress Hill. I would see Cypress Hill. Yeah. <laughs> if somebody was if somebody was taking me along, I'd go. Yeah. Dirty Heads with Sublime and Rome. No. 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 Modest Mouse. Yes. I would say yes. However, my buddy saw Modest Mouse the day after he saw Green Day with me and said that it was underwhelming. So, um, how maybe about no. Foreigner on September twenty first? Yes, times seven. <laughs> I, I, nah. I mean, if, if John wanted to, if John was there, and I would, I would go with John. So urgent. <laughs> and the urgent, final one, urgent. which I think I am going to go to, is Flogging Molly, The Violent Femmes, and Me First in the Gimme Gimmies. Uh, yeah, that's a yes. Yeah, none of those, none of those really jumped out at me and was like, yeah, I definitely would see that. So I'm gonna say no across the board. Save your money, okay. wait for next year. How about okay? I got a couple more for you then, Matt. How oh. about L- Lord Huron? I would see Lord Huron for and, thirty bucks. And my morning jacket. Yes, absolutely. That by far the number one I would see on that list. Didn't we see them together? I'm sure we did. Yes, I think we, we saw them we in did. Merryweather, didn't we? Before Bob Dylan or something. Oh, they did. Uh, You're right. They played with Dylan and yeah. uh, Wilco. You're yeah. right. Yes. I think yep. we got there mid set or something. Jo- well, you got there particularly late because that wonderful DC traffic was so yeah. kind to you. I right. would see both of those as well. So okay. if I went away, yep. All right. So I'll, I'll factor that in as I calculate whether or not to go. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Well, how are we've you got- doing, John? Oh, I'm just peachy. I'm doing fantastic. I'm always doing well, Josh. You know. Good. Life is life is my pearl. Well, speaking of life being our pearl, we've got three very interesting albums tonight. We have one returnee, one new act, and one somewhat returnee because he was a member of a band that we've covered on multiple occasions. Um, Let's bumper the show a little bit, guys, so people know what the hell we're talking about tonight. Matt, go ahead and start. I'm going to be doing Lou Reed, Transformer. I believe it's the album that inspired the Transformers uh, Mattel franchise. I believe that is incorrect, but that's okay. We'll agree to disagree. I don't know. Did the Japanese like Lou Reed? Who knows? Heck yeah, they did. And they still do. Well, they certainly like the band I'm presenting tonight. It is Mm -hmm. Deep Purple, Machine Head. They sure do. Yes. Do you know the the song Perfect Strangers by Deep Purple, uh, Josh? I do, yes. Yes, it's one of my favorite, like, 80s deep tracks, so... I nice. uh, have that one. Yeah. And and uh, I will be doing Stevie Wonder, Inner Visions. And we'll talk about the the uh, symbolic nature of that title as well. But I'm in the last segment. So we've got a lot to talk about today. No more banter right now. Josh, I know that you said you want to start us off today because you've got a couple segments. Then we'll go to Matt for some 
cleaning of the stacks as well. And I will uh, continue with our um, avant-garde segment on the 1,001 albums to listen to before you die. But Josh, the floor is yours. Okay, so let's do cleaning first, and Matt and I can both do that, and then we'll jump back to me. Um, I had, you guys mentioned last week about the Rolling Stones mobile recording studio, which is quickly becoming our <laughs> impromptu uh, de facto icon for our show. And Taking over for Sex Mansions, and what else was in the 60s? We had quite a few 60s ones, but not as Carol many 70s. Carol King, maybe. <laughs> and, uh, uh, it actually Moog synthesizers, comes, which it will come back up, up today. It comes up again in Deep Purple's story as well. And um, so you guys didn't know where it was. I think you said off the cuff towards the yeah. end of the show, where is where is it? And yes. mm-hmm. I know where it is. It's in the National Music Center in Calgary, Canada. It's part of their, huh. uh, that's a nonprofit museum and performance venue. And they have it there on display. So if you wow. are in Canada and Calgary or want to venture there to see it, you can see it. I was in wow. Calgary in 1987 or 88. I think I missed it though. Were you were you wrestling professionally or something <laughs> in the dungeon? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that's the category of mad sharing, but but that's not quite being sure why he's sharing. So yeah, I was in Calgary on a, on a cross country trip with my family oh, in the okay. late eighties. We also yeah. Anyway, that's I got more stuff to say. But and one time I ate arugula and <laughs> I had arugula today. Actually, there you go, full circle, there. very spicy. Uh, it, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Matt, what, what about your, your cleaning? I know you got some. Well, John intrigued me last week when he was talking about Pete Townsend's solo career, particularly the album All the Best Cowboys Have Chinese Eyes. Mm-hmm. So, by I, the way, I, did, I get, did I get canceled just for saying the name of that album? <laughs> <laughs> okay, just making sure. You might have. Um, <laughs> okay. But yeah. I did listen to about the first half of it, and I wasn't a big fan. John, you're right. It's not very good. It's very eight, It's very 80s. It's very synth. He, he does the synth thing like pretty in heavy. Like a bad way, 80s. Yeah, and like the first track is like he's not even singing. He's... I don't. I can't tell. He's not rapping. He's just talking over the music. It's just really weird. Um, not very good. But I was curious about the title of the album, and um, I did see that Townsend explained that the album title uh, was referring to quote the average American hero, somebody like a Clint Eastwood or John Wayne, someone with eye, someone with eyes like slits. Um, and and then later he would he would go on to say, Well, I don't understand. Sh- I don't understand that. Like what. Because they understand. squint, because those guys squint in their films. Oh, and they okay. look very like badass, you know, when they're okay. like staring somebody down. Um, that's what I took from it, anyway. But um, he later would say that he should have won a uh, stupid title of the year award for <laughs> for that album title. So uh, I think he regretted it later on. What once was creative becomes a little bit racialist thirty years later, and that's <laughs> the circle of life. <laughs> I would expect that from Eric Clapton, but not from Pete Townsend. <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> <laughs> who was it who just shit on Eric Clapton recently? The guy, uh, Brian May from Queen, right? And basically, yes, he did. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So. All right. Okay. So movie now, corner, right? Yeah. We got a Josh's movie corner. Let's cue the music here. That's why God made the movie. And as promised, I watched Quadrophenia over the weekend, Ooh. and 
uh, from 1979, directed by Frank Rodham. So this is, you know, six years after Quadrophenia was released as an album. And this is a... I was expecting something like Tommy going into it, especially after watching the movie Tommy. And this is far different. It's not a musical, first and foremost. It's more of a straight kind of like teenager uh, story, slice of life story about him using the framework of of Townsend's um, Quadrophenia story of of Jimmy. And it gives a really good job of... um, uh, so there's no musical numbers and then it intersperses some of the music from Quadrophenia kind of in the background. So you're not hearing every mm. song. It's it's very much okay. like scattered throughout and it's part of the soundtrack, not not for the characters within within the movie. Um, there is some references to the who like Jimmy has a picture of Pete Townsend on on his bedroom wall at one point and the who are on TV. He's watching them. So I guess the who exists in this Quadrophenia uh, movie universe, which is kind of weird to think about. Hmm. But it's very much about Jimmy being dissatisfied with his life. It does a really good job. Now, I don't know how accurate this was to to, uh, you know, teens in the 60s in Britain, but it's very much like mods versus rockers. That is the theme of the thing. And they're all they're all about the mod culture and the modders all have these these green jackets that they wear and they all scoot. They're all on um, like Vespa's not like Vespa's, but they are mm-hmm. like scooters and they all have multiple mirrors and they like trick them out and stuff. And then the rockers are like the greasers with motorcycles. And that and, was yeah. a thing, believe it or not. It sounds like a bad episode of Greece or yeah. like, you know, but it, that uh, was a thing that came up often in bios of the who. So yeah. Real yeah. Thing. So, yeah. So I don't, and I guess maybe that's probably based on a little bit of the who as kids as well. Um, maybe if they were into that or something, but they um, were the mods that that's okay. kind of, their, that was their brand early in their career that the who were the mod band. Yeah. So I, the, the actor who plays Jimmy, um, Phil Daniels, you might recognize him. He's a, he's a British actor. He's been in some, He's a continuing working actor, but he kind of looks like Pete Townsend a little bit to me. And and he pretty much evokes very much what the story goes through in Quadrophenia. And um, there's a big uh, mods first rockers um, brawl uh, riot. I almost at the as part of the climax of the movie or um, about two thirds of the way through. And then, um, of course, like Quadrophenia, he get, gets down in the dumps and and has some setbacks in his life and he's contemplating suicide and um it kind of ends on a an ambiguous note but um it's 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 more serious it's not comedic in the way that tommy was the movie and um not as lighthearted. but i really enjoyed it i i gave it three and a half out of five stars Ooh, that's a pretty solid rating there yeah so you can watch it on um if you're interested you can watch on hbo max it's streaming there you can rent it on amazon and also on criterion channel how was sting's performance He's so he plays like the head, um, like the most famous mod. Um, his name is Ace, and it turns out Ace that uh, you know he he wears this slick suit and he's got a really cool scooter. But then Jimmy finds out that you know he's the bellhop at the hotel. He's not some like famous guy oh. sticking it to the man. He is just a low level guy like everyone else. Oh damn! Spoiler alert. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure. But uh, yeah, check it out if you're interested in uh, Quadrophenia. Uh, I, I'm glad I watched it. It was an interesting companion. Not what I thought it, but a pleasant surprise nonetheless. He wasn't the man in the suitcase, Josh? <laughs> nope, he wasn't. Okay, gotcha. All right. 
Anything else you would like to add, Matt, in terms of cleaning, or did you do all your cleaning? I cleaned everything. Cleaned everything. I, I saw a movie though. We, maybe we could talk about this next week. But did you guys see the uh, the HBO documentary on um, on Woodstock '99? Oh, it's on my watch list. Maybe we okay. should talk about that. Next I wa- week. I watched that this past week. It was it was very good. Um, I will make it a point to watch it this weekend. So yeah, maybe we, we could. Yeah. So it's now I'll have a trifecta movie corner discussion next. There week. you go. Mm, okay. okay. Are you guys ready to listen to some more of the albums you must hear before you die? Ooh, I'm ready. I, I'd like to. I'd like to hear one of these albums that you list off, John, and say, "Oh, I've actually heard that," so I can check <laughs> one of them off my list. So, popular request is to bring this segment back, despite, as someone said, Matt's somewhat mean-spirited comment about whether or not anybody's paying attention to this segment. So, I'd like to thank that CTS viewer who did appreciate this segment. Did I make a mean-spirited comment? I don't remember. You said, that. "Does anybody actually ever go back and listen to these albums with a little <laughs> bit of edge in your voice?" Which definitely oh, yeah. listeners. Noticed, I was just. So. I was mostly wondering if any, if either of you did, because I hadn't, and I mm-hmm. didn't know if I was falling behind with the times. Well, Matt, you kind of came off like a prick to some of the CTS yeah, listeners. So. That can happen. But you're a good guy, so I'm going to vouch for you that you're not. I a appreciate prick. that, John. Yeah. So, uh, what I also am going to vouch for is the fact that while there are a lot of albums from 1969 on this list, most of them we covered already. So, mm-hmm. I'm going to kind of shoot through the couple that are in 69 and actually do 70 today to make it a full fledged segment. Are you guys ready? Ready. And mm-hmm. as it was last week, you guys just can give your initial thoughts here, anything that you remember, or just what's on your mind. So the first album from 1969 is the self-titled album by Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Hmm. What are, they, what are they most famous for? What song? So the main guy of Blood, Sweat, and Tears, right, he came up in the 60s, if I'm remembering, because he discovered someone and i am totally blanking on who that is um so i'm gonna have to do my homework on that because he came up quite a bit um one of the members of blood sweat and tears when we were doing 60s albums as like a discoverer of talent and a bankroller of talent so um i'll look into that again but that was how i remember that's, it was there. that's one of those bands that i don't know very well but i there's a couple of songs that are just omnipresent and i can't think of them right now off the top of my head. <laughs> They well, can't be that on the present. Their most then. popular ones on Spotify are Spinning Wheel and You've Made Me So Very Happy. But I'd mm. have to hear them to know. Spinning Wheel. <laughs> You're just making that up. What's that? No. <laughs> round and round. Spinning oh. Wheel. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully that gave the listeners. Yeah. Mutts come down. That's it. That's it. Okay. Spinning okay. Wheel. Yeah. <laughs> There's going to be some listeners who are either appalled or appreciate Matt's musical rendition there. So I want them all. Well, <laughs> instead of CTS, we've got the CTA, guys, self-titled. Do you know what huh. the CTA is? Uh, oh, it's dance. No. Something Transit Authority? You got it. The Chicago Transit Authority, <laughs> oh, baby. The original Josh. name for Chicago. Oh. So, And as we talked about last week, when I think of Chicago, I think of them as a vehicle for Mr. Steve Winwood. That's do, who I was thinking. Do we them. cover I, any Chicago? They're a popular band. We do not because I think critics have a love hate relationship with them mm. because they're very indulgent. I, <laughs> I thought of Peter Cetera. It wasn't Steve. Steve Winwood was in Chicago. It was in traffic. traffic. Oh no, he was in traffic. I'm sorry. Th- are you talking wow. about Peter Cetera? Peter Cetera was who I was going for. Yes, Matt, and and you're absolutely right. Steve Winwood's in traffic, as we mentioned last week. Oh, that was a big mistake by me right there. I'm gonna, Josh, can you edit that so that I don't sound like... No, don't. Leave it in there. 
sports and all. <laughs> we want raw, un- Listen, unfiltered, unfiltered John. That's what we want. Well, and a couple other ones here are going to be a little bit less exciting because we've got the one CCR album we didn't uh, cover because uh-huh. we—it's Bayou Country, right? We never covered that. Oh one. no, to Bayou. Yep. Yeah. So Bayou that, Country, one of I'm the sure two albums. I'm sure it's awesome. Yeah, it's, uh, I'm sure it also sounds quite a bit like the other ones, and I don't mean that in a yeah. negative way. <laughs> they, uh, they, they stayed in their lane, but they did it very well. And then uh, we covered Legion Leaf by Fairport Convention, but mm-hmm. they apparently had another album in 1969 oh. that also made this list, Unhalfbricking. Un- okay, I think that, yeah, I remember, vaguely remember that title coming up. What does that mean? Back. It's I, like a full bricking. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for the context there. But, not, but it's a little bit more than a quarter bricking, but a little bit less than a, a full bricking. So, yeah. That's, what they, gotcha. that's how they do fractions in Britain. Ah, there yeah. you go. Okay. That so, makes sense. Well, that sounds believable to me, so we're going to run with that. <laughs> so then there's a whole bunch of other albums that we covered before we get to Johnny Cash at San Quentin. So we, of course, did the infamous Johnny Cash um uh, album on, at Folsom on the prison. prison on the prison mm-hmm. circuit <laughs> but he's yeah, apparently san, on the prison circuit. the san quentin one never got as much uh publicity as the uh, Folsom one though well it apparently is one of the thousand and one albums you should listen to before you die matt i wonder so if he does i hope he that. i hope he does a different set list yeah uh, he does it's a longer album for what i remember okay. too hmm. yeah um and then we've got pentangle basket of light they're another they are another um Fairport Convention type of British folk band, I believe. Okay, Pentangle. Pentangle. That yeah, it sounds like a uh, like a like a prog mm-hmm. band named Pentangle. I mean, I could be way off, but I'm pretty I, sure. Yeah, <laughs> sounds like a twisted penis is what it sounds like to a <laughs> Pentangle. <laughs> so we've got Quicksilver Messenger Service, Happy Trails. I have any no. thoughts? I think Do- I have heard of them before. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't that's know a band i've heard of their name and i have absolutely no idea what they sound like no. So i might have to clean that stack by listening to that uh in the next couple days uh we've got the bgs odessa from 1969 oh that's old school bgs it's real old school that's the, bgs mm-hmm. that's the stuff that genesis used to sound like before they went prog yes <laughs> that's as we learned last mm-hmm. week yep mm-hmm. and then we've got the temptations cloud nine and then finally, we have the Young Bloods, Elephant Mountain. Hmm. Young Bloods, yeah. is that? Uh, come on, people, now smile on your brother. Everybody, get together. That's the Young Bloods, isn't it? Very well, could Let's be. Look it up. Yep, mm-hmm. you're right. That's their most popular song. There you by go. And I do know that margin. song. <laughs> and I, yeah, I was about to say, I do yeah. know that song. So, all right. So we go into seventy here, where we get Ananda Shankar, Ananda Shankar from 1970. Continuing our theme yeah, of didn't the, you mention them last week, or is that a different artist? No, it's a different different artist, oh, okay. but from the same part of the world, Josh. So. <laughs> okay, gotcha. <laughs> um, and then we've got actually Deep Purple in Rock, Josh. Okay, from yeah. 1970. That is their. I think it's two albums before the one we're talking about tonight. Yeah, and it's actually we just missed it in the 70s. It's number 110 on best ever albums right now. And Deep okay. Purple's on Mount Rushmore in that cover yeah. art. <laughs> but they, there's like an extra, there's an extra face that they had to put below Teddy Roosevelt, <laughs> where Teddy Roosevelt would go. No, wait, yeah. not Teddy Roosevelt. That's who's on the far right? Lincoln. That's Lincoln. Sorry, got my got my presidents wrong. How could you mix up Abraham yeah. Lincoln and Teddy so, Roosevelt? They well, they're right so next similar. to each other. Yeah. They're right next to each other on the thing. You know, they both have facial hair. Come on. 
Well, and this is a, I'm going to read both of these at the same time, Matt, because it's going to represent a yin and a yang for you here. We've got oh boy. Paul McCartney, McCartney, and Rod Stewart, Gasoline Alley. I, I do not need to listen to another <laughs> Rod Stewart album before I die. I can <laughs> definitively say that. You can make it 1001 once yeah. you get through the album. Yeah. Rod, okay. Rod Stewart auditioned for Deep Purple at one point. Ah. Did not make really? that. Yes. <laughs> that would have sounded very different than what when they came they were from. looking it. for vocalists. Yep. I'm trying to think like, like Rod Stewart singing like Smoke on the Water. Like, Smoke. Like, I'm just like that like raspy voice. Like I just think of like the Maggie May Rod Stewart singing like Smoke on the Water. Like, and, we uh, all came to, Like I can't even do it because it's like mm-hmm. so incomprehensible. So yeah. And the McCartney album was his first solo album. And then like he did a thing where every 20 or 25 years, he did another McCartney album. So he just came out with McCartney 3 that he, re- he uh, recorded during uh, the lockdown. Who does he think he is? Scott Walker here with these albums where he just names them after him. Well, if he comes know. out with McCartney 4 like in 20 years, good on him. That's are they, some, that, are they, that vegetarian life was treating him well. Are they Roman well. numerals? Or, or, uh, uh, I, I, yeah, I think they are actually. Okay. I think well, so. McCart- McCartney does not have the one after it, in case you're wondering. It's right, just it's just McCartney. McCartney. And then he decided to do McCartney 2 and now McCartney 3. Which actually, after he recorded and released that, a bunch of artists covered all the songs and did like a McCartney 3 cover album. So you can find that as well if you want. Okay. Okay. And then we've got Soft Machine 3rd. What? I don't know. What is that? (laughs) Don't know much about Soft Machine, I have to say. I'll be interested if you guys know anything this. Spirit, 12 Dreams of Dr. Sardonicus. Spirit. (laughs) Spirit. That's the dan it dan 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 It's the instrumental. Do 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 do. Wow, you're good, Matt. I always think I always think of Bill Paxton and Apollo 13, like because he's rocking out to that on the. Oh yeah, you're right. That is. R.I.P. R.I.P. Bill Paxton. You were great in Weird Science. As Chet, right? Was that or no? Was he? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 He turned into the blob. He turned into the blob at the end. And the thing where he's married to three women, right? Was that him? That was, uh, yeah. 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 Big love. Twister. Big love. So, yeah. All right. Stephen Stills, self titled. Stephen Stills. Known primarily on this podcast for sex mansions, sex and mansions. also yeah. and also being in Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, <laughs> and and also trying out for the monkeys and not making it because they thought his teeth were too jacked up. That's the other thing I remember about him. So amazing, and also yeah. probably being interested in Joni Mitchell, right? I think he d- he dated Joni Mitchell, and Graham Nash was who Blue was about, right? But Stephen Stills also. Her her Some main relationship was with with Nash. Everybody wanted Joni Mitchell. Like it, it was like her and Carly Simon. Apparently, like that. What was... did you say? The Kavorka? Is that what she you had the used? Kavorka? Yeah, yeah, totally. So, so so who that we've done so far has the Kavorka? Carly Simon, I think at least I believe had the Kavorka. Would you co-sign that, guys, as her having the Kavorka? Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. We uh, Nico, right? Oh, for Kinda sure. Had the Kavorka. Yep. yep. And then Joni Mitchell, we've established, has the mm-hmm. Kavorka. Okay, is there any... Grace Slick probably had it, too. Everybody's like, everybody in that band slept with Grace Slick, didn't they? In the Jefferson Airplane. And and so is there male... Because I don't want us to sound overly sexist. Is there... Oh, Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger had the Kavorka. Yep, for sure. Uh, David Crosby seems like he had the Kavorka inexplicably because he was having, like, 
threesomes and sixsomes, right? You know, and just right on the couch <laughs> while the rest of them were writing songs. Remember that? It's just like, could you imagine David Crosby like sitting in a room fornicating while you're trying to do anything? Just you got like a BJ under the table at a at a at a production just, meeting or something like that. Yeah, he was. Uh, yeah, just why remarkable. I don't know, but yeah. But yeah, so other uh, listeners can add who else has the Kavork. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously a lot of uh, Jim Morrison, I think, would be on that. But I just didn't want to make it sound like we were just uh, picking women. But there were some women who just seemed to really uh, be attractive to the opposite sex. And so we got to give them credit. So that could be mm-hmm. a new one right there. We've got uh, Sid Barrett, The Madcap Laughs, Matt, which if anybody's going to listen to it, I think, Matt, you should take a bullet I think for the I did. rest of us. I think I did listen to that a little bit. It was his uh, first solo album after... Uh... He left after he was kicked out of Pink Floyd. Um, it got pretty good reviews, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, I don't remember. It, it it didn't leave me <laughs> with with a strong impression one way or the other. Uh, so, but it's supposed to be his best solo album. Gotcha. Well, we'll pass this. The Grateful Dead Live Dead. So that one is on here. I do have. Um, I do know that one. That one has a. Uh, that one's known for its um its inclusion of Dark Star, which is a uh, big live song for the Grateful Dead, but was never really recorded or put down, but it was on that album. So that's a lot of deadheads like that album because of uh, that inclusion of Dark Star on that. It's like, again, it's probably like 26 minute version or something like that. Josh, you'd love it. It's great. Fish probably covered it, I'm sure. I don't know if they did, actually. I don't know if they ever did Dark Star. That's becoming Matt's catchphrase on the show. Fish, you know, and then Fish covered this show. So but I think (laughs) they do cover a lot. (laughs) And then it's my entry. It's my entry point for a lot of stuff, too, apparently. And uh, the Carpenters, close to you. We're not going to cover the Carpenters, but they sold a lot of albums, mm. a lot, a lot of albums. So uh, I do feel like we need to shout them out. So I always think of Rick Moranis in uh, Parenthood singing that <laughs> "Close to You" song to get his wife back in the classroom. <laughs> wow. Okay. I I think of uh, aren't they? Uh, Why do birds yeah. suddenly appear? Is that the Rick, song he sings? Yeah, Rick Moranis okay, doesn't yeah. sing it as well as Karen Carpenter, though. Just you know, full. What's disclosure. the other? What's the other like really sad song that uh, they often play that Karen Carpenter sang? Oh. Obviously, she had the tragic life, and I felt like I watched a lot of Time Life things back in the day, and this Carpenter song would always be on there with her singing like. It looked like on like the Lawrence Welk show. Or We've something. only just begun. We've only just yeah. begun. There you go, Matt. That's the one I was going for. And that, I always think of Happy Gilmore when I hear that song. So. <laughs> that's just nothing but like eighties and nineties movie references this hey, week. That's you told me where we're at. You told me free association, so yep. that's where I'm going. I think I also told you. You know, Matt, when we cover eighties and nineties albums, what we really shouldn't do is just do nothing but references that like we would understand in inside baseball because it might not be attachable and. Boy, did you ah, not listen on. to me on that. Everybody's yeah. seen Happy Gilmore. Yeah, it's like you're becoming like family guy. You know, remember that time <laughs> on that? Yeah, so you're the manatee pushing the balls. So. <laughs> then finally, we have Traffic with John Barleycorn yeah. Must Die. <laughs> Matt, okay, yeah, that, Matt, yeah, that's a good song. I like John Barleycorn. That's a, yeah, I, know, I don't know the album. I know the song, though. So. so there you go. Those are the 69 and 70 albums. I appreciate you guys weighing in. Matt, you get the gold star this week because you were all over a lot of these. So. And it, sound, good stuff. it sounded like he actually list, had listened to some of those before. Yeah, after mm-hmm. making that joke, yeah. Matt like, knew every album this yeah. week. So apparently we just needed to hit the 70s. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Well, I won't take up any more time with that, even though I enjoy that segment, because I think it is I, the first segment is Matt, correct? No, it's Josh. No, it's it's, it's Josh. Okay, so Deep Purple, Josh, the floor is yours, my friend. Okay. 
Deep Purple, in the opening montage, you heard the classic Smoke on the Water, and now you're going to hear the also classic Highway Star. So Deep Purple, they have a a long history because machine. You need numbers had, first, Josh. Yes, please. Sixty-five in the nineteen seventies, number seven in nineteen seventy-two, two sixty-eight of all time, and sadly, it's not on the Rolling Stone list at all. Oh wow, that is sad. I, mm. Okay, well, well, we can discuss that in a little bit. So Machine Head was released March twenty-fifth, nineteen seventy-two, and this is actually their seventh studio album. I don't know wow. how many bands that we have not covered, you know, or this first covered that have had this many albums out already by the time we've That's we've ta- discussed them. Yeah, so. Um, I mean, I guess Stevie Wonder's had like 16 albums by the time Intervisions has come out. <laughs> this will be his 16th this week, yeah. in case you're wondering. Yes. T-Rex uh, had like five or something. I think that was like the or Tyrannosaurus. That was yeah. but seven's a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, first formed in 1968 in London, there have been many different lineups of this band, and, and they are still active as of today. They released an album in 2020, in fact. And uh, Ian Gillen, who's the vocalist on this uh, iteration that we're talking about today, said that there are no plans to retire as of this point. Um, It's like the Scorpions. mm -hmm. So there are so many uh, different lineups of this band that they go by Mark 1, Mark 2, etc. to to differentiate the different lineups. Up Up to now, there's up to Mark 8 on on the iterations <laughs> we're going to be focusing uh solely on mark ii today um which made machine head um it is the second lineup obviously and the most successful lineup um it consists of ian gillen on vocals roger glover on bass and and uh they joined founding members uh john lord on keyboards slash organ ian pace on drums and richie blackmore on guitar uh, this lineup was active from 69 to 73. Uh, but let's back up a little bit. The original members of the band were all musicians from different bands. They, it wasn't an instance where, like some of the other people, like The Who and stuff, they knew each other in school and then formed a band. They were all working um, in different capacities for other bands that were not as successful as Deep Purple became. Um, the first to join the band was Hammond organ player John Lord, um, who, has, who died in 2012, and... Um, I mentioned that because it will come up uh, later. But him and the other original members then suggested Richie Blackmore um, join the band as he was a working session musician at the time who was becoming somewhat well-known. Um, the other original members were Nick Simper on bass, uh, Ian Pace on drums, and Rod Evans on vocals. And then Richie Blackmore suggested the name Deep Purple after his grandmother's favorite song 
which I was trying to find what hmm. that song was, but I couldn't I couldn't find it. Um, they released their debut album in May of 68 titled Shades of Deep Purple, um, and they had some success and were a support act on Cream's Goodbye Tour. Um, their second album was released on October 68 and was titled The Book of Taliesin. And their Can third I album... jump yeah. in real quick? Didn't mm-hmm. somebody play, like, open for Cream on that last farewell show that we've covered? Oh, that's gonna drive me nuts. I don't know. I'm pretty sure remember. somebody. I'm pretty sure somebody did. I'll have to look that up. I'm sorry, Joe. I was just wondering if you guys remember okay. who that was. Yep. Mm-mm. In March of '69, their third album was released, and it was self-titled "Deep Purple," um, and this was the last album by that Mark One original lineup. Uh, during the '69 American tour of the album. Uh, Lord Blackmore and Pace discussed taking the band in a heavier direction, and as a result, they kicked out Evans and Simper and brought in Ian Gillen on vocals, who is with another band called Episode 6, along with Roger Glover. Uh, Gillen said that he would only join if Glover came with him, um, so that made the Mark II lineup and uh, essentially disbanded the the band that they were in Episode 6. So sorry for those guys that were also in the band. In 69, they released a the Mark II lineup released an album called Concerto for Group and Orchestra. So this has got some prog uh, background. It was released with Deep Purple playing with the Royal Royal Philharmonic Orchestra at Royal Albert Hall. And it was a three-movement epic composed by John Lord, who was a um, classically trained um, organist or keyboardist. And it was the first Deep Purple album to actually have any success in their native UK. Up until that point, they were successful in in America, um, but not the UK. Um, however, Gillen and Blackmore didn't like being known as, quote, the group that played with orchestras. And they wanted yeah. to keep going in the heavier direction that we know them for. Um, after this, they toured more and more and released Deep Purple in rock in mid-1970. And this is the album that solidified um, their sound and and what we know them as, at least from Machine Head. Um, the album did well, especially in the UK, and then they re- quickly released their next album, Fireball, in the summer of 71, which hit number one in the UK album charts. And while on the Fireball tour, they started performing songs that would wind up on Machine Head, including Highway Star. So, in December of 1971, the band was heading to Switzerland to record Machine Head. The album was due to be recorded at the Montreux Casino using the Rolling Stones mobile recording studio. <laughs> but a fire during at the casino uh, by Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention playing at the time, <laughs> which was caused by a man in the audience firing a flare gun into the ceiling, so uh, caused the casino yeah. to burn down. This entire Jeez. story... Was it Captain Beefheart? <laughs> <laughs> No, or what just... was the one guy's name in his band? Remember the African American guy? I think he was. Oh, uh, Jimmy Carl Black. <laughs> Jimmy the, Carl the, Black. The, the Indian of the group. Oh, the Indian <laughs> of the group. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. <laughs> no, it was nobody in the Mothers of Invention or Frank Zappa. It was okay. somebody in the crowd watching them going crazy. Okay. Apparently. Fair enough. Um, there were no. There was a controlled evacuation, and there were no f- fatalities. I would like to add, but. Um, the casino. Did I love burn the term. It's very unlike. It's very unlike evacuation. 
controlled yep. evacuation like jumbo shrimp you know what i mean it's like almost impossible so this entire yeah. story i bring this up because not only because of the rolling stones mobile recording studio but because it formed the basis for smoke on the water the song if you listen to the lyrics yeah. of that you'll hear everything i just said essentially yeah, like, frank zappa in the bo-. yeah like yep. i always think of that yeah exactly oh, yeah. and the mothers yep. yeah i yeah Damn. um they toured relentlessly after um a machine head well, okay, so let's let's stop there, actually. The rest is... Um, no, let's keep going. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Machine Head was released in March of 1972, and it was the band's most successful album, hitting number one in the UK and number seven in the US. It stayed on the Billboard chart for over two years. Um, Never Before was released as the first single, but really wasn't very successful as a single and Warner Brothers only released Smoke on the Water as a single after it was played heavily on the radio. So they, they didn't get the uh, they didn't pick up on the success of that. They song. released it as a single because it was being played on the radio? Yeah. That's weird. I, I just How does that I, work? I just love the A and R guy or the record company going like, We need a hook for this song. I just can't yeah. figure out what it is that catches people's attention yeah. with this song. <laughs> yeah, I know. Okay, so that's where we're gonna stop for now. I have a little bit of post uh post um story but machine head had you heard it and how did it blow your mind matt let's go with you i had not heard it um it did not blow my mind although i did like it quite a bit um obviously i knew smoke on the water and uh you imagine being the flare guy, the the guy that like fired the flares, like the I am responsible casino. for like yeah, like would would that riff and that song exist without flare guy? No, it's pretty amazing. That's true. Um, but uh, yeah, that that riff is like, it's it's John. You talk about you know the dudes in the college dorm like trying to figure out stuff like on the guitar. Like that's one of the mm-hmm. first things that anybody learns to play on guitar. Um, you know the Beavis and Butthead. I posted that on actually on Twitter right yeah, before that the episode. Funny. That, yeah, the Beavis and Butthead like always singing that. But that just that along with Le- the the Layla lick that might be the most iconic uh, guitar riff that we've covered in this entire uh, I'd run put of the a, series. I'd put a throw in for a bitch as well. That's a pretty damn. I I no I put yeah. no I put this in Layla. I had I, I love the riff for bitch, but they that didn't get near the amount of. Uh, I mean, this is omnipresent oh, you're, for this riff. Yeah, you're you know, talking, I'm not about talking about famous, not correct, like best. correct, okay, like gotcha. like classic all time like yeah. guitar riffs that just everybody knows. You know, I think some, like, I think an average person would know "Smoke on the Water" just because of the riff. Yes, or at least yeah. know the name of the song, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I think I like uh, the the parts of this record that weren't as bluesy. The ones that kind of were just okay for me were like the more bluesy songs, like mainly Maybe I'm a Leo and Lazy. They're mm-hmm. good. Um, Lazy is a bit long, uh, but part of that reason is because it starts with a pretty long um, instrumental kind of, that kind of takes them a while to get into it, which which is which is fine. Um, and they're very good at it, right? It's just, when I hear those songs, to me, it's a little bit more of a dated kind of, that sounds like more of a 70s classic rock blues sound. It's fine. It doesn't really... It doesn't. Josh is shaking his head. He's totally disagreeing. That's fine. It's. I'm not saying I hated it. It's good. But like the stuff that I gravitated more towards was something like Highway Star, um, yeah. Pictures of Home. Um, I liked those. Those songs were more interesting to me, and that's where I was seeing the proto metal. Like the guitar solo on Highway Star is like that's a metal guitar so, uh, uh, yeah. solo. You know yeah, what I mean? Sure. Um, pictures. There's parts of Pictures of Home that reminded me of some of those Black Sabbath albums that we covered earlier uh, too. Um, 
and really like never before. I don't know what space trucking is, but I kind of want to try it after. Yeah, Josh has got a space truck space behind trucking. him now, so space trucking. Uh, but very strong album, very good album. Uh, you, you know, and um, but yeah, I think that was the main thing, main takeaway. I liked, I liked it when they kind of made songs a little bit more their own rather than going kind of the classic blues bluesy route. Um, although that's still very good, it just wasn't as interesting to me. But thumbs up on this. Um, it's it's a fun record. Uh, seven tracks. There's a couple of longer ones on here, but it's um it's it's yeah it's, it's just great really upbeat good rock rock and roll music and um you know i can see how this was paving the way helped to pave the way for you know hard rock and metal in the years to come so uh you know so yeah i i, I like it and um highway star i think i knew that song originally i think that's on rock band so it's also a fun rock band song to play as well i can say that so <laughs> You yep. stole one of my talking points about this because I said I've probably sung yep. like, you know, nobody going to take my, fr-, you know, like a thousand times through like rock band stuff. But yep. a cu- couple things. First of all, I found out that, yes, it was the band. So, yes, there was a band that opened for Cream and it was Yes oh, was who okay. the band was at that last concert. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't going crazy on that. And Josh, you asked me if I've heard this album before. And I think the uh, the only answer I can have for that one, Josh, is yeah 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 you know on this one as well so a little reference (laughs) there as well um yeah no i know this album very well this there's a talking point and normally i hate talking points uh but i think this one is true that at the beginning of the 70s there were three bands that sort of reinvent like basically created the template for what like 95 percent of bands the rest of the decade did right and it's zeppelin black sabbath and deep purple and you definitely can see the Um, beginnings of Mm -hmm. a lot of bands from the mid 70s early 70s out of this sound whether they um, were a slightly mellower version whether they went a little bit harder whether they played what Deep Purple did but maybe not as well Um, there was there's not a bad song on this album I think it's funny that Matt who loves these long songs thinks the long songs on this that's why I was shaking my head it's like the long songs on this album are how you do long songs. Exactly. There's a lot of stuff going on. Like each of the transitions is awesome. Like the pieces together are great. They usually recenter back to what you liked in it, you know, like centered around a riff. Um, mm-hmm. it, Highway Star is an awesome opener. I mean, Smoke, in, Smoke on the Water as track five is bizarrely placed, but boy, is it nice when it comes in. And Space Trucking is an, I've always loved that song. It's such a, it actually might be my favorite Deep Purple song. Um, it's so good. Um, yeah, I, I, I think it's almost impossible to understand 70s rock and the sound of the 70s mm-hmm. without listening to this album because it is every bit as influential in sound purposes as Zeppelin and Sabbath were. Now, maybe over time, the more critically acclaimed bands sounded like Zeppelin, right? And maybe everybody knows the Sabbath part because it's spun off into metal and you basically can't hear metal without Sabbath. But I'll tell you, if you listen to 70s rock, you hear way more bands that are trying to do what Deep Purple did um, Mm. to varying degrees of success, in my opinion. And I mean, we can... You know, we can run them off in terms of, you know, contemporaries, right? That like Bad Company is sort of in the same lane as this, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And then a lot of the AOR bands that came in the mid to late 70s run with this and just down-tempo it a little bit. But the idea of these strong choruses, big guitar riffs, Mm -hmm. clean, clean production, right? All of those things are on display. And we haven't... We've listened to a couple albums 
in the bonus episodes that sound like this, but if you notice, they were um, later in the decade yeah. when we covered them. Yeah. And I think there's nothing we've covered in the regular episodes or even in the cold list and hot takes because we're still staying in the eight, you know, the the um, the years, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so we're still in the same year that pretty much this one is in, but we're going to start to hear a lot more albums that sound like this in the bonus episodes yeah. as we had to the mid seventies. We just, and even some things that we're going to do full bios for that, that owe a lot to this. So strong, strong recommendation for me. I really like this album. Um, as I said before, there aren't really any bad songs on this album and it breezes by, I mean, it's probably one of the, yeah. the lighter albums that um, in terms of, you know, not getting to like track five and six and going like, why, you know, how long is this album going to go? Like by the time Space Truck go, I go, oh, that's it, really? How about that? You know, and it's not super short as an album either, but the runtime, in fact, how much is it? It's, is it like 42 30, minutes? 37, 46. Yeah. 37, 46. Yeah, and it feels more like 25 in my opinion. So big thumbs up. Josh, I don't want to speak for you, but you and I share some similarities on music and I have to think this is one where we probably share it. Oh, yeah. I love yeah. this album. Hmm. Um, so I was unaware of how influential Deep Purple was until I listened to this album and then started doing research. But it makes total sense, right? Like like you guys said, this is the basis for heavy metal along with, with Zeppelin and, and Sabbath. And I can totally hear it. I, I love, I mean, this is everything I like in rock music, you know, going through all the bands that we love together, like Guns N' Roses and, and uh, you know, on and on, um, The Hives and 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 even jack white and stuff i love the the energy that this band has the propulsion that they have with their driving guitars um i think the one thing that differentiates this band from sabbath and zeppelin is the use of the organ the hammond organ and that adds a a nice layer to to their sound all of the guys in this band are are really good and i think they're all highlighted on this album you've got drum solos you've got drum fills which are really good you've got organ solos you, there's a bass solo and pictures of home and then richie blackmore's guitar is just great and and i love uh gillen's voice too he's like like this prime like growling type of voice and it's really strong and powerful like like john said it leads to other 80s vocalists that that kind of like journey and stuff right that's strong like upfront. um uh center presence and i i think that gillen has that in this band well and he gets up he gets up there too he gets really high yeah. towards the yeah. end of some of the songs like some of that metal screeching you know a la robert plant kind of mm -hmm. you know so. or like iron well, maiden or something like that too yep mm -hmm. and and it even pretends the sound of blackmore himself in like rainbow <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, because, you know, you know what Rainbow was a vehicle for, right? Along with Blackmore. That was Ronnie James Dio. Oh, right. Okay. So it's like, imagine that Ronnie James Dio with Blackmore as <laughs> yeah. well. That's yeah. So that came a little bit later. Yeah, that's crazy. Mm -hmm. um, I, I also appreciate how <laughs> that's why I was shaking my head when Matt said the songs were long. This album is 37 minutes. These are like the perfect length songs. They are always like doing something different. And like John said, it brings you back to the, the main like driving beat. But then they I just appreciate a good guitar solo. And, and they have those in spades here. And and I had not heard Deep Purple other than Smoke on the Water and Highway Star. So it was really nice to hear all these other songs and find out that they're as strong as as those two songs. So, yeah, it's it's great. I love um the organ too is I think that's a good use of organ lazy is like an organ led song or at least in the beginning and and you can pick out the different use of 
instruments throughout these songs and, and hear the organ and kind of how it how it adds depth to their songs and makes them stand out from other bands that or, or differentiate at least from from iron uh not iron Maiden from black sabbath and led zeppelin so yeah big big thumbs up for me um i'm interested to hear what some of their other albums are like if they even reach the height of this because this is by far their well, most successful and does, best-selling album doesn't black blackmore doesn't hang along much longer right because isn't like the next incarnation i i could be wrong josh but mm-hmm. it, isn't david coverdale in deep purple yes he joins he okay. joins later um and does he replace Blackmore, or does he come even later than he's that? He's a vocalist. He's a, he's not he doesn't play guitar. Yeah. He, no, I'm I'm saying though, like the different iterations. Does he come directly after Blackmore, or do they overlap at all? Uh, let me double check that. Wikipedia hasn't had that cool little chart that shows you when the guys came in. Yeah, and when the they, different. Or, or wait, maybe the, I'm in the wrong thing. Yeah. Um, I know. I would say this about the organ too. While you look that up, Josh, mm-hmm. it's very um, it is very prominent, but it's almost like. It's like he turns it up to 11 on the organ in a lot of places, mm. you know, because it's it's almost – I mean, you talk about the production. The production's interesting because it's crisp, but it's also – there's times where those instruments are really um, – I don't. It it sounds it sounds good, but it also sounds like they're overplaying them too as well. Like because they're kind of getting to the part they're getting like to that part where it's so loud that it's becoming less crisp. Um, mm-hmm. But it sounds really cool, and they're making that that organ sound. They kind of make, you know, their own. The, the make make yeah like a distinctive sound for deep purple you know um so that certainly stands out for sure yeah so coverdale joins in the mark three lineup and and blackmore leaves after the mark three lineup so, so they do overlap okay yeah. coverdale was in from 73 to 76 and blackmore left in 75 so there was, was one ian gillen still in the band no i was gonna bring that up he okay. leaves after the mark two um but then comes okay. back because so I figure you can't have Coverdale and Gillen. Right, they so Coverdale sing, replaced, right? yeah. looks yeah. like he replaced Gillen. Yep. Yeah, yeah so, to, so to wrap up, I mean, are there any other thoughts on the album? Well, I, they have like a lot of um, like stuff around them that I, I know like all the time. Mm. Like I know, weren't they called like the world's loudest band for a while? That's one thing I always remember hearing about mm. them. Like no bands louder than Deep Purple. Like... So I I'm, I feel like that was a thing, but I could be wrong. I also know tons of bands that I love, like love Deep Purple, like mm-hmm. Priest, Judas Priest, and Van Halen, and uh, I, uh, Iron Maiden. Like all love Deep Purple, and I think like the a lot of the heavier grunge acts, like Alice in Chains and Soundgarden and stuff, loved them too. So I mean, I know they're I, and Metallica, yep. you know. So there's a I just know that they like a ton of bands I like always say that. Deep Purple was a primary reference. So they've always been like a close to tier one band for me in terms of influence. But I don't know if they, uh, which is funny because they were more successful in the US than they were in the UK for a long time. But mm. they don't f- often get thought of as being as successful as they no. were. So, which is weird to me because they were and they influenced just as many people. I learned more about them, John, when we watched that uh, History of Metal documentary uh several years ago so that was when i first was like oh i didn't i mean i've always known smoke on the water and that iconic song and i've known of the band but you're right they didn't really they didn't really get the the uh you know the airplay or the uh 
I don't know, people, the buzz that someone like Zeppelin well, or, or Sabbath did, you know, those are much, those are, those are acts that stood out to me way more than uh, Deep Purple ever But did. I think if you, in the time they might have, it's just like yeah. history has shown but that they, exactly. you know, Zeppelin for whatever, and Sabbath had the um, iconography, right? And, yeah. and it's probably because Deep Purple was changing their lineup all the time, right? Where original mm -hmm. Sabbath wrote it out longer and, you know, Zeppelin was the same band the whole time. So that could be it too, you know? Yeah. They weren't as pretty either, and you know, as as Zeppelin was, mm -hmm. right? And they weren't as tabloid heavy, you know, as Black Sabbath was. So, yeah, yeah they're kind of in this weird middle ground compared so, if if you had Zeppelin and Sabbath on the ends. So they were too normal. Yeah, maybe maybe so. Yeah. yeah. Um, they toured relentlessly uh, after this, and including in Japan, where they released a double live album called Made in Japan, where. It reached platinum in five countries and became um, one of the best, considered one of the best live albums of all time. And Deep Purple themselves loved performing live and, and tried to capture that on their albums. I'm sure and they would boy, be great to see live, you know. Yeah. Dude, that Made in Japan album is awesome. That's one of the first metal albums I can remember listening. It's long, though, so get mm -hmm. ready. But it's, it's, uh, it's an awesome it, album. And it's their third highest ranked album on best yeah. ever albums. So those two albums followed by their follow-up album, What What Do We Think We Are, made Deep Purple the top-selling artist of 73 in the U.S. So huh. they were quite, very popular. Wow. Um, and then due to tensions in the band um, and exhaustion from touring, um, Gillen and Glover quit the band, um, arguably at the band's peak, and that ended the Mark II era of the band. Um, and then finally, I thought you guys would like this. So they were first nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2012 and 2013 but were probably infamously not inducted and then that's when seemingly every artist under the sun started complaining including gene simmons getty lee slash steve lukather of toto all of metallica and <laughs> le champion chris jericho of fazi has also <laughs> said, nice. um, complained about why they weren't in the rock and roll hall of fame in 2013, they were nominated again, but again did not get in. And then in 2015, they were nominated and finally inducted in 2016. Hmm. Uh, eight members of the band were inducted, so not everybody in the various lineups, but I guess the... I don't know how it's so interesting how they would choose like <laughs> yeah. a band like this. You know, certain yeah. bands are just like, okay, that guy does shouldn't go in there. But with so many different members, they must be like, okay, this this part of Deep Purple sucked. Mm -hmm. So uh, like, I think it's primarily like the people in Mark One and Mark Two that were nominated. Yeah. Um, of the seven living members, because John Lord was already dead by that time, five of them showed up, and then of course there was controversy as to who was invited and who mm -hmm. was performing. Uh, Richie Blackmore didn't show up, even though many people Gillen said that he was invited and there's you know there's always that he he said he said type of thing mm -hmm. um and then the current members that were there played highway star hush and smoke on the water so that ends uh our story with deep purple although they they kept on and are continuing to play today yeah and uh if you want to hear made in japan listen to that and then dream theater also did made in japan <laughs> in entirety so if you want to hear Made in Japan, done by wow, you know, Dream Metal as well. There you go. You it's got to be the intense. Dream Theater version. Yep. Jeez. Okay. All right. Who's All right, next? So, so I guess it's me. Not the who album. Right. Matt. Right. It's me. Um, all right, so we are doing Lou Reed Transformer. This comes in. Uh, I'm sorry. In the opening montage, you heard a piece from Vicious, and now we're going to hear a part from Perfect Day. 
just a perfect day. You made me forget myself. I thought I was someone else, someone good. Oh, it's such a perfect day. So this is uh, Lou Reed's uh, second studio album, Transformer. It comes in at number 33 on Best Ever Albums uh, in the 1970s, number six in 1972, number 128 of all time. And in Rolling Stones, pretty, pretty close with Best Ever Albums. Rolling Stones says it's number 109 of all time. Uh, the album was recorded in August of 1972 and released on November 8th, 1972. And it's considered a fairly influential album, particularly in the glam rock genre. And it holds and it includes Lou Reed's most successful solo single, Walk on the Wild Side. You might have heard of that before. It was produced by David Bowie and Mick Ronson. And uh, so, yeah, we covered Lou Reed a bunch of times. Uh, Josh gave us a lot of info on the Velvet Underground, which mm-hmm. was uh, his uh, band that he was in. Uh, but I'll go over a little bit more about Lou Reed um, and his upbringing. He was born on March 2nd, 1942. It's another it's good a birthday. Very, yeah, it's a good birthday. Very special for the CTS family here. Um, and he was born in Brooklyn and he grew up in Freeport, Long Island. His family was Jewish and actually their, their original last name is Rabinowitz, but that was changed by his father to Reed. As a child, uh, Lou Reed did suffer from panic attacks. He was socially awkward. Uh, and according to his sister, he possessed a fragile temperament. I don't think that any of those things are terribly surprising to, to any of us here. Uh, he, <laughs> no. He, he would be very focused, though, even though he kind of had some attention issues. He would be very – the things that interested in him, particularly rock and roll, he, be, he did get very focused on, on those things and um, got very much into music. I read that he learned how to play the guitar from the radio. I don't know how that worked. It didn't. I didn't get any more information on that, but somehow you're able to learn how to play the guitar through the radio. Uh, he played in several bands in high school and began, began taking drugs at the age of 16. Again, no surprise there. His first, th- his first group was a three-piece doo-wop group called The Jades, and uh, he played the guitar and sang backup. The band played a talent show at a local junior high school and received such a positive response that somehow they were offered an opportunity to record a few songs in the studio, along with saxophonist and, and, and I don't know if it's a CTS legend yet, but person that we've mentioned several times, King Curtis on the saxophone, played on the songs So Blue and Leave, it, Leave Her For Me, um, a couple of those songs with Lou Reed's earliest band. Didn't really materialize to much, though. Uh, Lou Reed did go on to Syracuse University, where we talked, Josh mentioned that before. Uh, He was brought home one day after suffering a mental breakdown, and um, he remained depressed, anxious, and non-responsive for a period of time. And to combat this, his parents agreed to uh, electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT. And Reed would later describe this experience as being very traumatic, and it led to some memory loss that he experienced. He also felt that this was a way to treat uh, his feelings of homosexuality. Lou Reed has always 
there's a, you know, reading about his sexuality. There's lots of uh, pretty much the, the, the consensus is that he was bisexual, but he never really came out and talked about it specifically. He might have written about it in some music. He dated trans transsexuals and things like that. But um, but yeah, he felt that this was a way to kind of suppress his homosexuality, although his sister would later deny this and said, no, they were just doing this because of his anxiety and uh, panic attacks. Jeez, traumatic. Yep. So Wasn't after treat, Towns, oh, Towns, Towns Van Zant, right, had a similar story. Oh, you're right, he did. I don't know about mm -hmm. it because of being gay, but he definitely, yeah. No, not because the... of being gay. He was married right. like seven times, but yeah, right, he, yeah. Um, so after treatment, after this treatment, Reed goes back to Syracuse. He studies journalism, film, creative writing, and he also became a platoon leader in the ROTC program, which I found interesting. He didn't really like this, and. <laughs> In order to get how, how does, <laughs> does that happen? You know what I mean? Like, how does any? I don't like, know. I how does don't anybody know. say? You know what would be a really good fit for you, Lou? Like ROTC <laughs> would be a really yeah. good strong. Yeah. Well, Lou didn't really care for ROTC very much, and in, 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 in an attempt to get out, in a successful attempt to get kicked out of ROTC, he hold he held an um, empty gun to a superior's head. Wow. All he would have had to do is say, "You know, I like men." I don't want that yeah. Yeah. yeah, and then it's like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, despite all of this, he did graduate cum laude from Syracuse with a BA in English in 1964. He then moved to New York City and began working as a songwriter for Pickwick Records. And this is around the time that he met John Cale that Josh talked about and started and, and formed what would become the Velvet Underground. So if you're interested in some of those Velvet Underground episodes, go back to season one, either episodes 26, 29, or 33, where we covered White Light, White Heat, uh, the Velvet Underground, and the Velvet Underground and Nico, and season two, episode three, when we covered Loaded. So fast forwarding, after the Velvet Underground, Lou Reed uh, moves in with his parents <laughs> and started and worked as a typist at his father's accounting firm, earning forty dollars a week. <laughs> I, I, he, a continuing string of jobs that just do not seem to line up at all with what Lou Reed would be strong at. So, well, yeah. it also speaks to like how little success he saw with the Velvet Underground. Yeah, really. right? He's going to work for forty dollars a week. Forty dollars a week. Fun fact, equates to $267 in 2020. So still, still not a whole lot. <laughs> yeah, hey, no. Hey, hey, Lou, what were you doing last night? Well, I was uh, recording some songs about uh, sending myself in a box to someone and uh, <laughs> repressed uh, repressed homosexual feelings. But I'm here to balance some ledgers today, guys. Yep. So, yeah. Pretty and much. My, ban my band eventually will be super influential, but not yeah. for another 15 years. <laughs> He did, uh, in 1971, he did sign a record deal with RCA Records, and he began working on his first solo album in London, joining in for session, as session musicians in, uh, included w Rick Wakeman and Steve Howe from Yes, Ooh. another combination wow. I never would have saw coming. We gotta start making a map of how everyone's I, connected. I know. I know. Uh, it didn't sell well. Surprise, surprise. Uh, it did. It been included over a lot of versions of unreleased Velvet Underground songs. Um, it was also overlooked by critics. So for his second album, Reed brings in David Bowie and Mick Ronson to produce and uh, perform on uh, the record, which is what the one we're covering tonight, Good Transformer. Choice. Yes. Um, and again, this, this included a couple of songs from the Velvet Underground days that never made it to uh, an album. So the musicians include, include Lou Reed on vocals and rhythm guitar, Mick Ronson on lead guitar, piano, recorder, and, and uh, he was the arranger of the strings. 
David Bowie on backing vocals, keyboards, acoustic guitar, um, and a couple of other musicians. Herbie Flowers played the bass. John Halsley played the drums. And also Klaus Vormann. Do you guys remember Klaus Vormann? From the Beatles. From mm-hmm. the Beatles days. That's right. Yeah. Got the, the guy that played with Paul and George and John. Actually, probably not Paul, actually, because he, he replaced Paul, basically. But he played on some bass here as well. Um, a couple other quick things here. Walk on the Wild Side was the song that was his most popular song. was written for what was supposed to be a film adaptation of a book of the same name, but it never got made. But uh, Lou Reed still finished with the song. It was an unlikely hit that talks of transgender issues, sex acts, and drugs. And uh, it was played on the radio. And the BBC censors obviously missed a lot of the... Uh, they, they, <laughs> they, the, the word was they didn't understand what giving head meant. So yeah. um, people were pretty <laughs> floored that that made it past the censors. Um, so, uh, so yeah. So I got a few things to tie up the end of Lou Reed and uh, his life and his career. But let's talk about our reactions to this record. We will start. I think we got to go with John. What do you think of Transformer, John? Yeah, man, I love this album. And I think if we hadn't started, awesome. if I <laughs> Josh, if, uh, I didn't say you yet. <laughs> slow your roll. I just had to jump in. If if I think if we hadn't started with White Light, White Heat from the Velvet Underground, I'd realize how much I like the Velvet Underground because like every time we keep doing something, I think it was just the one miss shot for me is White Light, White Heat because after that, I mean. I'm digging what they're putting. And and it seems to me that the more Lou Reed was involved with the Velvet Underground, the more I like them because I like the second self-titled album and Loaded quite a bit. And he has an an unusual ability to write hooks in – but not sound at all like he's building to a hook and he gets to them non-traditionally, which – and they're not, um, you know – uh, verse chorus verse chorus type hooks either like but he kind of meanders around sometimes and then sometimes gets there really quick right and uses repetition in his lyrics his um his song craft is fascinating because he goes between more oblique stuff at times and you're not quite sure what he's getting at but you could put pieces together to being like hyper literal at certain times, you know, and sometimes in the same song. And that is a really fascinating um, lyrical device. Um, the background music, once again, I think I mentioned this on especially the later um, Velvet uh, albums, but the first one has it as well, sort of. It, it's really cool to listen to it on headphones because there's little craft built in that, you know, you can hear that polished Bowie and Ronson production that sounds like a Bowie album or sounds like a T-Rex album or the, the, you know, the Iggy Pop and Stooges stuff that we've done, right? So there's hallmarks that you know it's one of these Bowie productions. And I know Bowie loves Lou Reed. In fact, mm-hmm. part of what they said his persona was, right, was part Lou Reed and part Iggy Pop, right? I think we mm-hmm. even talked about that in an episode. But um, there's, there's elements of that Bowie and Ronson production, but then there's also hallmarks that you can immediately recognize if you're a Velvet Underground fan of what Lou Reed sounded like and how he wrote songs for the Velvets. So I really was digging this album. Um, Even the stuff that's bizarre, like New York telephone conversation, right, Mm -hmm. is it fits in the context of the theme of this out. Like now, Josh, was there a theme to this album? Because like a lot of stuff that Lou Reed writes seems to me that it's about the darker side of like New York City life is yes. that I mean I know he writes about drugs a lot too but 
it's not as I think his drug songs are more oblique kind of whereas his sex songs are more overt I'd say and when we talk sex songs by the way it's funny that we're doing Stevie Wonder next right who writes these like very romantic like Lou Reed does not write about sex as like a beautiful thing right it's more of like almost like a curiosity and a boundary pushing way of looking at sex um, and uh, transgressive would be another word I would say but even the stuff that's a little bit odd like New York Telephone conversation works but can i just also throw in i mean people are gonna know walk on the wild side and uh perfect day right because it's mm -hmm. almost become like a meme at this point but uh vicious you know i recognize because i've heard that before but it's certainly not a like super mainstream song but i would i love that song i also love satellite of love yeah. um which also operates in that thing where if you're a music fan, you might know it like Vicious, but if you may not know it if you're not as familiar with Lou Reed. Mm -hmm. And uh, I liked Goodnight Ladies as well. I, that lyrically in particular was, uh, I like quite a bit, but I, I really did like this. In fact, I would go so far, uh, guys, as to say this is a top 10 album of the 70s for me so far. That's how much I like huh. this album. So, yep, big, big thumbs up for me. Deep Purple is high on that list too, by the way, in case you're wondering. So two albums that are going to be high on my 70s list. Uh, today. So strong thumbs up, Josh. Well, I am bright lockstep in with you. Uh, this is a strong, strong recommend for me. And I think it is on my top 10 of the 70s so far. Um, this Talk about an album that is uh, incredibly uh, influential. <laughs> it feels like every artist I can think of sounds something like this, um, you know, like the Pixies or Mm -hmm. or or obviously the velvet underground but it seems also more upbeat than the velvet underground and the song craft like john said is just it's he writes incredibly catchy songs i mean almost all of these songs on here are very listenable and in sort of a, a weird unconventional way i guess in the way that the velvet underground also was i think this is an essential listen for people because they would hear they would kind of be sucked in by the unusualness and the kind of uh, off-kilter nature of this album, but then he brings in like hooks that are so, so catchy. And I think that's a testament uh, to why a lot of these songs have been used in pop culture and covered or um, just been in the ether with uh, throughout, throughout the years. Um, I think Bowie and Ronson probably have something to do with that as well. I really like kind of the things that like in Satellite of Love where he has the backing singers sing bum 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 and just and like the catchy piano on hanging round and and there's tuba and makeup um, and so he peppers all of these or Bowie and Ronson um, pepper all of these things into the album to make it sound unlike anything else. Um, with the exception of the Velvet Underground. And I'm, I'm not sure if I like this more than the Velvet Underground albums, but it, it's right up there neck and neck with them. Um, I Can also... I share an observation, Josh, based on what you said? Mm -hmm. He's got a little bit of um, a shared lineage with a little bit of what Phil Spector was doing, doesn't he? Even though mm -hmm. he's also, like, in terms of the complexity and how he's doing things and that homage to, like, classic rock and roll music... Like, he definitely, you can tell, is slightly influenced by that. But he doesn't in any way do it in the easy... Like, there's no shortcuts for him. You know, he manages to stay poppy, but without taking any of the shortcuts that would make something commercially successful, which is such an odd... There's not many acts that 
can write catchy songs like he does, but also not have really any commercial, <laughs> you know, appeal. Right. Mm. Yeah, yeah, he's not very um, like approachable type of figure. He's always been kind of irascible, right, in interviews and especially as he's aged. Wait, is he dead now, Matt? I can't remember. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. He died um, in 2013. Okay, and but and he's not like a recognizable name in the way I would say David Bowie is or something like that. But so on the one hand, you kind of have this abrasive personality, or at least kind of off, uh, you know, standoffish type of personality. And obviously, with everything that Matt said in his bio, like <laughs> he's got he's got some emotional. Mm-hmm. Uh, trauma and, and things that he worked through but then he when you look at the songs that he writes it's just like kind of crazy that he writes these really catchy songs I, I guess I'm interested in kind of the dichotomy of that that on the one hand he seems to not hate humanity but <laughs> seems like he wouldn't write these types of songs I guess uh, and his voice isn't really we've said this before he's it's not like he has a voice like stevie wonder that can really sing or something like that he's kind of got a rough voice as well but paired with with these songs it it just works in a way that i i really respond to um perfect day i recognize from train spotting that's a mm-hmm. yep. definitely a a way and then um some of these other songs like wagon wheel which i thought was another sh- strong song and hanging around which i really liked um they've they've come up as well i think satellite of love i've heard from from movies or tv as well but yeah i i i think everyone should listen to this album i think it's really strong in a surprising way um especially if you hadn't heard it before um i I think it's got a lot of uh, depth and value to it so to answer your question john there's some theme in here it's it's a lot of this is um very much inspired by andy warhol and and the New York scene, what he was doing at his warehouse. Vicious was a song that Warhol basically went up to Lou Reed and said, "Hey, I think you should write a song called Vicious." And he's like, "What do you mean, Vicious? You know, like I hit, you know, you hit me with a flower." And Lou Reed's like, "Okay." So like, so that's he wrote Vicious because it's, he just had that conversation with Andy Warhol. Like I think of Lou Reed and like the Velvets, even though it's the late '60s and the early '70s, as almost like. Um, you know, what New York was in the 70s, right? Where it was this like dangerous place. And I know it continued mm-hmm. to the 80s, but it became like dangerous, dangerous in the 80s, right? Where in mm-hmm. the 70s, it was dangerous, but it was also like, if you were a creative person who didn't fit anywhere else, like New York was the mm-hmm. most vibrant. I mean, there were all these people around and, you know, you I just, and so like, I, I, when I heard this album, I was like, this is like scoring <laughs> New York mm-hmm. in the early to mid set. And we're going to do the New York Dolls too in a little bit. And that's another album that, uh, and I think maybe it's because I grew up outside of New York and um, I kind of came of age in New York, right? At the era when New York was being cleaned up. And so you always heard like how New York used to have an energy and stuff. And, you know, New York always has an energy, right? But, like, I almost felt like I missed the prime of New York, you know? And, like, this sort of represents, like, what people talk of as, like, the prime, like right? Like the romanticized the version of it. Yes. Yeah. Because no one romanticizes 80s New York, right? Because by then it was, like, all the, dub, you know, the gates of Pandora's box had come. But people absolutely romanticize, you know, 70s and even very early 80s new york you know is one of the last raw places on earth 
Yeah. Well, and, and that's where you get songs like um, New York Telephone Conversation, um, Walk on the Wild Side. I mean, these songs are about what he saw. Walk on the Wild Side, each verse is about a different person that he met or knew about. Um, it's interesting. I watched, Josh, you were telling me about the documentary about mm -hmm. Transformer that PBS did that you can yeah. you can see it on Amazon Prime. And uh, they interviewed some of those people, and they were like, I met Lou Reed for five minutes once like and, and years later somebody's like hey he wrote about you in this song you know <laughs> walk on the wild side so um you know and andy's chest is about the attempted uh, assassination of uh, of andy warhol so a lot of this is very much new york lou reed is very very much a, uh, is considered um you know a new york artist he is new york in a lot of ways mm -hmm. that's just mm -hmm. you know that's that's the scene um and a lot of these songs were about you know either andy warhol or his association with him or the people that he was with at that time um and uh, and all that stuff so uh, i really like this album as well i don't know if i god it's really hard for me to say what's in my top 10 i i just i is at this point there's this is going to be a lot harder than the 60s uh mm -hmm. for me but um it's a great album this is so varied right there's so much stuff right. going on here he's all over the place and i'm like looking at this going lou reed is like the godfather of indie rock you know there's just yes. it, and this album is 1970 and it doesn't sound anything like 1972. You know what I mean? Like there's this is like no, a like nothing the Velvets do. Does yeah, sounds like this it is just this is just like a very modern sounding album in a time when you didn't have many modern sounding albums. Um, and one of the other things that you guys say some interesting things about his gift for melody. He, it's certainly there. And when I heard Perfect, I forgot about that song. I didn't know that it was a Lou Reed song. That is such a beautiful, that chorus, that song might be one of the most beautiful songs that I've heard in this entire run of this podcast. It is such a great song. And he's got this like Leonard Cohen type style about That's a him good comparison that yeah. like mm -hmm. that like can write like this amazingly beautiful song and sing it in a non-traditional way like his voice is kind of wavering like on purpose there you know what i mean it's it's um but it's all part of his style and it's and and, he, and john and uh, leonard cohen does a similar thing with a lot of his songs as well yeah but i find lou reed to be so much more compelling than Leonard Cohen. I do. Well, and he's certainly much more interesting. He is much more varied. Leonard Cohen's kind of like a one tone kind of thing, but he can write some beautiful melodies. It's just that I was thinking about that comparison, but I agree. I think Lou Reed is a much more interesting artist. Um, Good Night Ladies is a very interesting song. It's like this Dixieland kind of mm -hmm. horn section going yeah. on, you know, that's just like kind of comes out of nowhere. You know, New York telephone conversations like the show tune offbeat piano part. It's only a minute and a half, right? It just kind of right. goes in and out. And then and he's certainly got glam stuff on here. You know, a song like I'm So Free or was it Hanging Around, you know, these more upbeat kind of like hand claps very much in the in, in the light of uh, a T-Rex or a Bowie kind of a thing. Um, and then he's got Walk on the Wild Side, which is one of the most iconic probably bass riffs that you're ever going to hear, which is actually two bass parts. The bass player played an upright double bass, and then he played for the higher part. He played an electric bass. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so that was kind of an inter interesting part of that documentary. But um yeah, just very good, very cool. Just a very cool sounding guy. Um, and, and when you see him interviewed, he's he's very um, he's he's very appreciative of um, what David Bowie and Mick Ronson did on this. You know, is uh, particularly with Ronson's arrangements of the strings on a song like "Perfect Day." He was very, um, uh, uh, you know. Uh, 
he was very pleased with Bowie's singing on the back the background at the end of um, Satellite of Love, which is mm-hmm. kind of like this repetitive kind of chorus thing that they go into. But it builds. It's got the horns, and you've got David Bowie on the high part of the hitting that high note at the end, which Lou Reed really liked. So I, I love the collaboration here with Ronson and, and Bowie, um, and it's it's uh, it's it's a very interesting album. It, it it this one goes by fast, pretty pretty much too. I would say it's thirty six minutes. Yeah. Um, so again, not long doesn't overstate its welcome, but damn, Lou Reed is cool. Like, you know what I mean? And he's very, um, very unimpressed with himself when he was interviewed about this album. He just said, it's just an album. You know, it's like, what? It's that's all it is. It's an album. It's yeah. fine. It's good. Can, Relax. Can I, add, can I add something too? Because yeah. it's interesting because Bowie gets the rap and rightfully so of being like, you know, transcendent and, you know, kind of being able to do it. But in many ways, he just rode trends exceptionally well he spotted them but he was in his moment right he was mm-hmm. gl- he was glam right and then later he'd you know kraut rock and he'd kind of run with that and um you know he's just doing and even the the blue-eyed soul stuff he does in like his middle period is kind of backwards looking to me the interesting thing is his two people are lou reed and iggy pop because to me they seem like space aliens thrown into like the late 60s and early 70s basically inventing music mm-hmm. for the next like 20 years yeah. while nothing around them sounds like them mm-hmm. you know what i mean like lou reed and iggy pop to me exist in a a plane and, and to and you know throw the stooges and velvet underground right those are the two bands that there is nothing that sounds like these yeah. people and and everything after them sounds like them but they have like no audience right outside of only the most avant-garde even the cool people don't necessarily catch on to them right like these are people like still holding jobs and stuff and it's just fascinating because like it it almost is they were thrown onto earth to show us what was going to be coming in music and i just i'm trying to think if there were other periods of time in like the 80s and 90s right where you saw like people that operated almost like space aliens like they were doing something that people weren't doing and then didn't do for like 10 years later, but it became so obvious as to what they were God. doing was what the next thing. But I mean, it's too, I, I don't know if there are many because, and, and maybe as we go through the you know late 70s, 80s and 90s, it'll become as clear. But do you guys see it like I do? Like the Vel, I mean, yeah. you hear the Velvets and the Stooges were ahead of their time and stuff, but like I cannot stress enough how much nothing sounds like these guys when we're listening to it. They come out of nowhere with really no... The only thing that sounds like them is themselves to some degree. Would you put so, Sabbath in there? I mean, yeah, Sabbath and that early Zeppelin album, We I think we all like um, commented on the fact that they were there. But you could even see some roots of where they came yeah, from, there right? Yeah, there's some blues. There's definitely yeah. blues influence, and you can hear that in some of their early... Stuff. And I mean, there's a little like 50s doo type stuff with what Lou Reed does, like buried underneath a little bit and a little bit of the spectre thing. And, you know, in Iggy Pop's case, you know, he says he listened to the Beatles and stuff like that. But uh, just their personas, too. They were just so yeah. these guys were so far ahead of their time. And I think you almost have to be as disconnected from you have to be cool, but also disconnected at all from trying to be cool right in the way and and probably have to take a shit ton of drugs right but like that's mm. kind of like what these guys were and i i just want to throw that in there because i can't stress enough like 
yeah. how much they seem like I said space aliens, but which is funny because you know Bowie loves them. He loves space, <laughs> so maybe he just saw them as space aliens too. So Bowie's yeah. in space. I I I think for me, the more I hear this album, it's it's kind of my definition of what a cool album or what a like classic pop album what this what i want something like that to sound like is and then retroactively if if i had heard if somebody had like shown me this album or you know had me listen to this album when i was a teenager i probably would have i feel like would have just kind of transformed what i was into as far as music or or pop culture was and would you turn like... into morrissey <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a guy who notoriously loves like everything velvet underground so I mean, yeah I, i'm just thinking in terms of like how much i like it and respond to it now and what i would have liked it as an earlier age and hmm. because these are the songs that you hear or i heard in the background and not necessarily on the radio or like from a movie like train spotting and not knowing who it yeah. was or what it was just knowing that it's like a really good catchy song and like knowing that it's Lou Reed now and like that it's it's just kind of icon I, I, uh, iconoclastic uh, just a classic in terms of, mm. of, of rock music and where it goes it's just kind of transcendent for me in that way and I thought of something, Matt, your brother said, he, you know, he's always on the search for the perfect like three to four minute pop song. Right. Yeah. And I had a lot of things that coming into the 60s and 70s, I would have held up as, you know, like brown eyed girl or um, here comes the sun. Right. Like songs I could have done stuff. The more time that comes on the more I realized that I think Sunday Morning by the Velvet Underground is like the perfect pop song mm, <laughs> of oh, the really? 60s. I just, I keep coming back to that as like, when I listen to it, I'm like, it's pretty much a perfect freaking pop song. You know what I mean? And like that encapsulates where I've come around on the Velvets, right? Yeah, in terms you've of- You've really evolved in real time on the show. Well, let's be honest. I mean, the White Light, White Heat album is is just vastly different than all the well, other Well, and stuff, I was you know? very under, under, under- educated on the like i knew mm. they were influential and i knew bits and pieces and i knew lou reed's solo career little stuff i knew the narrative but i did not have the level of appreciation for their music mm -hmm. and just they are the ultimate grower band they really if you like music they become the ultimate grower band because of the tendrils that go out to everything else right and so mm -hmm. it just hit me this week where i was like this yeah. is just a different way of doing pop music, right? That yep. just is every bit as viable. But like I had to like basically understand and I started thinking about it. And I'm like, I just think of those last couple Velvet uh, segments we did, right? Where there was like a song on each of them that stayed in my head for like a month after we <laughs> did it, right? And then I realized, oh, shit, I think that, uh, you know. Sunday Morning and Pale Blue Eyes might actually be the best pop songs I listened to in the 60s, and I can't believe I'm saying that. So, yeah. Sunday morning. You kind of like it. Yeah, it's good, man. He's, it's, and, it, and it creeps up on you. You know yeah. what I mean? Like it's it not really an, did. It's not an in-your-face kind of like, you know, with those songs that you hear on the radio that have like that really catchy chorus that just grabs you right away and gets people dancing and singing along. It's kind of like it's a subtle... It's a subtle type of catchy. It's a very intelligent and very unique way of doing music, and um, and he does it so well. You know, like, um, is is there even a modern equivalent of this? It's nothing that they play on the radio is like this. I mean, there's good. tons of stuff that was highly influenced by this. Yeah, and, I mean, well, right. indie rock became a thing, right? So, yeah. so, and even some indie rocks 
indie rock acts broke out a little bit and did get a little bit more mainstream. Um, but, but you'd have uh, to you'd have to be like ahead of your time, right? We yeah, wouldn't be looking. So like I think know. of somebody yeah. like like Beck, right? Or like Bjork in the people that like were operating where they were known, right? Like within the artistic world, but yep. really a lot of people weren't like I'm trying to like that's the type. I mean, they don't sound Radiohead. like him, but yeah, but to some degree, though, Radiohead was just taking stuff that you could do and reinventing it, kind of. But they were. Th- I'm saying you have to be operating outside of like what anybody else is. It's kind of like what uh, Krautrock they, they was did that trying too. to yeah, do. Yeah, well, they're all doing that though. I mean, like they're they're ta- they're taking they are everybody's taking elements from something. But mm-hmm. they're you know Radiohead did Kid A that came out of nowhere. Nobody was doing a song, an album like that. You know. Yeah, so, I guess I just don't. I don't think of them as being as good as Radiohead is. I don't think of them as being like vanguards right they just do artistic stuff i don't think of them as like they always seemed of their place you know and of their time like i think it's like the persona that you have to get to where a guy's like drifting through the era you know or a person is drifting through the era i don't know if that makes sense matt i feel like i think josh knows exactly what i'm talking about and i i don't you know what i mean i just it's hard to explain Mm -hmm. well yeah i i it's i don't know it's hard to it's hard to sit here and go like, oh, well, this artist was totally doing, I guess there's, yeah, I mean, when you say like somebody like Becker Bjork, yeah, they did, they did things that were totally different. Um, but I, I don't, I don't know. I, it's, it's, it's hard for me to come up with a, like a classic list of all of that. But, um, but I, I think that Lou Reed and what he did with the Velvet Underground, a lot of that stuff starts here you know um with that type yeah. of with indie with well, least with indie rock i keep going back to that but that's what really this is because and one of the reasons i say that's because it's so varied and he's just do, doing so many different things that you hear in a lot of indie rock today um but uh but yeah it's i it's it's great it's very interesting um i didn't really know a whole lot of this or velvet underground stuff either uh going into this and i think it i i agree i think the more you let it sit with you the the better it gets and it's interesting because it's a very he's He's not doing a ton of stuff. It's you know you talk about Becker Bjork. There's it, they seem more adventurous. I don't know. White Light White Heat was a little bit more full and a little bit more. I guess you could say sonically adventurous. But a lot of this is very muted. It's very subtle. Right. It's very basic. Um, but it's still unique and it's still interesting and it's still really good. So I found the thing that said the ten artists who were most ahead of their time, guys. Because oh, I was curious right here okay. by <laughs> album. Here's the ten that they said. So Sister Rosetta, who invented the rock and roll guitar, so way back in the day, um, they said the Beatles for doing the analog studio. MF Doom, who's now doing hip hop, they have said, well, he you know, just died too. he just died, right, you know, recently. So they said he would fall Thanks, into Josh. that. <laughs> they had Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground. Yeah. They had Bjork. They had Can. Okay. They had okay. R. Stevie Moore. The Stooges, yep. Beck, Beck mm-hmm. The Clash, and Captain Beefheart. That was the 10 okay. artists they set. And they wow. said honorable mention to Miles Davis. So a lot <laughs> of people that we've covered. Yeah. And yeah, and, and interesting that, and I, I don't mean to pat myself on the back, but in, I don't know what it is, man. There's just something I can hear in these type of people. You know what I mean? That just they, they're like space aliens in their time. And I'm going to be on the lookout for them in the future as well. John, did you look at that list before you said Beck and Bjork before? I, is that what I, happened? I didn't. And that's why I wanted to bring it up because <laughs> it just was fascinating to me because I was like, okay, I'm on to something here because 
the first thing I Googled, artists who were ahead of their t- musicians who were ahead of their time, it was a top ten list. And there I you think go. I, I think I heard of all those people except the the second to last person. R. R. Stephen Moore or whatever. Yeah, who is that? I never heard of that. So that I'll guy. give you uh, R. Stephen Moore. According to this, let me go back up to him. I, by the way, I'd argue with the Clash, and the Clash is my favorite band in the world. But I don't know if I think of them that way, right? You know, they reinvented stuff. So R. Stevie Moore has been called the godfather of DIY, of oh. lo-fi, and home recording as we know it. So it's like Daniel Johnston, like that so guy? He began recording as a teenager in the late 60s and retired in 2020, but he is a, per- a perennially obscure songwriter who would release his own material and was, yeah, so that's What was his, his name thing. again? R what? R. Stephen Moore, or R. Stevie Moore, excuse me, R. Stevie R. Moore. He is on Spotify. Okay, so you can check him out if you want to hear him. R. Stevie Moore, there you go. What do you, what do you think the time lag has to be for artists to be discovered and and be considered ahead of their time? Is it like ten years? years? Ten, ten years, years, I think. Yeah, I think so it's ten years. Who, so, who from 2011 is now considered? That's a really good question. Dua Lipa. Dua Lipa. No, she's de- We'd have to think about it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm I sure know. we could look at it and find people that that. I mean, and we might not totally, we'll just be processing it, you know, because we'll be seeing it in the output of the music right now. Well, in some ways I'm thinking like somebody like Kanye was kind of like that too for a while until he went full, full crazy. But, um, but yeah, he, he, I, I felt like that listening to him somewhat. Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, that's something we could look into. So maybe that can be a homework assignment for us. Mm -hmm. All right. Can I take the spot for Stevie here? Well, I had a couple more things here. Oh, oh, go for it. Yep. So just to cut up, because this is the last time we're covering uh, Lou Reed. And uh, so he does release several out. Al- he's this is he's got like 20 plus albums out there, by the oh, way. Geez. So if you want, there's plenty more Lou Reed where that came from. And of course, a lot of them sound different from each other. So they're not it's not all the same. But he did reunite with the Velvet Underground briefly, as Josh might have mentioned uh, before. Uh, but that didn't really last too long as he and John Cale, you know, couldn't really get along. So they did a couple of tours in the early 90s. But that was about it. A uh, couple of fun facts. <laughs> he, t- Lou Reed made a cameo appearance on the unreleased 1995 Penn and Teller video game, which he he appears wow. if you if, if you chose the impossible difficulty rating, he appears as the unbeatable boss who murders the player with his laser beam eyes. Wow! Um, and that's actually you can read more about that on Wikipedia because that was a the Penn and Teller video game from the 95. Um, he worked with several artists, including Metallica, The Killers, and Gorillaz. Um, and in 2002, they named an asteroid. There was an asteroid that was discovered that they named after Lou Reed. It's asteroid number 270553, Lou Reed. So he's got an <laughs> asteroid named after him, nice. and as well as a spider. A satellite of love. Really. Satellite of love. An <laughs> asteroid of love. Um, he also has a, a species of spiders named after him. The spider was discovered in 2012. It was a type of velvet spider, which I didn't know was a type uh-huh. of spider. And this particular velvet, velvet spider lived under, lives underground. So they named it Luridia as the like velvet, velvet underground, underground. Velvet underground spider. <laughs> nice. You got it. Awesome. Um, so Lou Reed, uh, he, he did suffer from hepatitis and diabetes for many years. He eventually developed liver cancer. He did undergo a liver transplant in May of 2013, but he did eventually pass away on October 27th, 2013, at the age of 71. He was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as a member of the Velvet Underground in 1996 and as a solo artist in 2014. So rest in peace, Lou Reed. You were one of the greats. Absolutely. 
And can I throw uh, Trent Reznor out as someone for that list, by the yeah, way? Yeah, that's that are a good 10, one. That's that exist outside one. of their thing. I was just yeah. thinking of that. I did not Google that, by the way. I was He's kind of transformed, brain. too, into this, uh, like, music movie, score. Movie, movie score. score. Yeah. yeah, guy. Yeah, so I would throw him in as another person who sort of exists as a zombie ghost, you know, person ahead of their time. So, yep. Someone who probably, in terms of pre-naternal talent, was crazy you know in their own way is stevie wonder and so before i get into his very interesting bio at the beginning you heard don't you worry about a thing and now you're going to hear a piece from too high the opening track Okay, so where do we begin with Stevie Wonder? Because we've talked about the Stevie numbers, Wonder. John. The numbers. Yeah, we the begin numbers. With the numbers, the numbers is a great place to start. <laughs> yeah, there you go. I'm so transforming th- the desk. <laughs> there you go. Number thirty in the nineteen seventies. Number three in nineteen seventy three. Number one eighteen overall. And in Rolling Stones list, it comes in at number thirty four. Okay, well, we've covered Stevie Wonder twice. We've done in bonus episodes. We've done Talking Book and Music of My Mind. Actually. Uh, that's the, uh, we did them in the reverse order and actually that's how they came to music of my mind came first and talking book came second. So you can check out the, uh, bonus episodes, uh, from this season, season two, if you want to find out a little bit about our thoughts on those albums and we can expand on that, but we've never done a full bio and to give Stevie wonder a full bio, we're going to also do, um, songs in the key of life later. So I'll probably stretch it over both, but I'm going to give the big bullet points right off the bat and guys feel free to jump in if you have questions, but, uh, Stevie wonder, uh, was born in Saginaw, uh, Michigan. Um, as pretty much everybody knows, Stevie wonder, uh, was blind. Um, have you been he- to Saginaw, John? I have been to Saginasty is the uh, nickname actually <laughs> for Saginaw as well. Did you so. hitchhike from there? Saginaw is a uh, rough, rough place. It used to be mm. a, an industrial part of uh, Michigan, sort of like a Flint, you know, type deal, or Warren, Michigan, right? And so Saginaw is similar to that, but uh, it's uh, hardworking folks, right? And you know, post World War II boomtown, right, in Michigan that was okay. there. So it was a, uh, it was a different, um, it was a di- little bit different Michigan there because it was, uh, you know, about a decade after. Uh, uh, the war the war ended, or right about you know a little bit before that when Stevie Wonder was born. So Stevie Wonder was not born blind, but he did have a pre-existing um, retinal condition that basically turned into blindness because he was born premature. And to save his life, they had to place him in an incubator, mm-hmm. and uh, the amount of oxygen in there did, uh, uh, along with the pre-existing retinal condition, uh, cause the blindness. Uh, it is a condition that would not happen now. They've figured out how to keep that from happening. Um, but, 
Uh, that is how that happened, in case you're wondering. Uh, the family moved to Detroit, which is relatively close to Saginaw, at the age of four. And at the age of nine, he was discovered, well, discovered because uh, Ronnie White of the Miracles, I'm sure you're familiar with who the Miracles are. We have covered mm-hmm. uh, Smokey, Smokey and them. Smokey. Yep, Smokey yeah. and them before in the early 60s. So he hears Stevie singing, is impressed, uh, takes it to Barry Gordy he uh, of Motown, and he uh, auditions him, likes what he says, and signs him at nine. And he is little Jeez. Stevie Wonder. And he wow. is, I mean, the best way to describe this period is he is just putting out smash hit after smash hit in the 60s, right? So his 60s is basically he is a Motown artist who is getting a ton of hits. There is a period where his voice changes a little bit in puberty, and they were a little bit worried. And that seems to be a thing for Motown, right? Because we talked about that with Marvin Gaye, I think. And we talked about it um, uh, with someone else, too, who's I'm blanking on right now. But basically, you know, that when they hit puberty, right, you know, you have to see if the voice is still there. But there's a little bit of hiccups as Stevie Wonder figures out how to, you know, adjust to the new deeper voice. But he makes it work and he continues to to, uh, release smash hits. So then a couple different things happen around 1971 that are interesting, right before he goes into that stretch that's known as the classic Stevie Wonder period. Uh, His Motown contract actually runs out, and he actually gains access to a trust fund of his money from that uh, period of time where he was a prolific, you know, hit maker, basically Mm -hmm. from the ages of 9 to 21. Uh, And he decides to not sign with Motown initially, uh, instead, he takes some of the money, he builds himself a studio, and he goes to USC, University of Southern California, mm-hmm. to study music theory during that time, which actually I did not know, which is fascinating. So he's there for a little while. Um, this leads to Motown going into scramble to sign him mode, and they do. And he actually signs for an increased royalty rate, and they allow him to uh, create his own publishing company. So he actually, to this day, owns the wow. rights to his music. Good for uh, which, him. Which, if yeah, you know anything smart. about, I mean, yeah, smart. For I mean, he had a lot of things going against him, right? He was young. Motown was known kind of for having a, a, a strong hand, you know, not them alone, right? But that was definitely a thing. And, you know, he was African-American male, right? You know, who, there's yeah. a history there of taking advantage of acts and stuff. But Stevie... Uh, was able to, um, no pun intended, sort of see the future a little bit in terms of, you know, uh, what that could look like. So he did very well for himself financially. Mm-hmm. Um, that allowed him to also be able to have the independence that becomes an interesting part of the next stage of his career. Because what happens is he releases an initial album and then he does Music of My Mind, a talking book. And that is considered to be where Stevie Wonder is becoming an adult um, artist right but he mm-hmm. still sticks heavily to romantic ballads right which i think we've even commented on in both of them right that he kind of sings about i think i joked around at one point like you know a lot of his songs could be you know uh saying it's like love 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 you know all the time because that's really right. what you're hearing right this is considered to be where it shifts to him going from that romantic ballad and sort of a child like more you know young adolescent you know just out of adolescence to a more musically mature and socially conscious artist and certainly lyrically you can hear that all over the place Um, so that is one of the things that this album is known for it is known for being where he makes that transition most clearly it's the third of what's considered to be his peak stretch uh We've talked about the other two. This is the third in line. And then Songs of the Key of Life would be the fourth. There actually is an album between Inner Visions and uh, Songs in the Key of Life. Uh, 
that we'll talk about why it's considered to be a little bit more hit and miss. Um, Inner Visions is uh, considered to be two-part, right? One of them is because of his blindness, right? Inner Visions is kind of like him seeing it in his own uh, way, right? Music of My Mind kind of has the the same concept, right? But Inner Visions is also supposed to uh, say like him looking inside of himself as a you know, younger person becoming a man. So that's the duality right there. Uh, Wonder played all all or virtually all of the instruments on seven of the album's nine tracks. There's a ton of instrumentation on this, and he's basically a one-man band on this. He's he's reminiscent, and this is very influential. You guys can probably guess already who I'm going to say. This was highly influential on a specific artist who would come of age about 10 years later, a little more, little less than 10 years later. Can you guys think of who I'm talking about? He's also referred to as a one-man band often. Same genre. Prince? You got it. Yep, this one, Prince was all over this one, as you might imagine. Um, This is also really well-known for being uh, the first album to use the Tonto, T-O-N-T-O, synth. And boy, it also has... um, Hmm. It also has uh, the ARP synth on this as well. Um, So let me start about that real quick. The ARP synth was the biggest competitor for the Mini Moog synthesizer and is the one that was used by oh. Edward Winter. And also, when you close encounters of the third kind, right? That sound, you know, oh, you, yeah, dun, yeah. Dun, dun, dun. That's, that's what the ARP synth sounds like. It was huge in the very late 60s and throughout the 70s. And then basically, it's like the story you heard of like the passenger pigeon, that there were like millions and millions of them. And then like 30 years later, they were like extinct. That's kind of like the story of the ARP synth. It was huge, huge, huge. And then suddenly it wasn't and just died off entirely um but the tonto synth is i don't even know where to begin on this story guys it's what it's known for but the tonto synth um was massively important for r&b music throughout the 70s it becomes you can't see anybody that's not using the the tonto synth in um 70s R&B and one of the things I want us to do is as we go through the 70s I want us to see how many times we can hear the Tonto synth and so what we're going to do is I'm going to send you guys some um, some clips of what it sounds like but this album is a great place to to start because the synth that's all over this album and it is right is mostly Tonto synth but really quickly the Tonto synth uh, there was a group called the Original New Timbrel Orchestra and they it's it was two people that um, participated in that uh, and they uh, Malcolm Cecil is the one who's probably more known he had a partner there in his act but basically Malcolm Cecil creates this Tonto as sort of a Moog modular synthesizer and then he adds a Moog 3 to it and then it continues to morph and we're getting into the weeds here right but he he keeps adding different panels to it and custom modules and uh, he's got an electrical engineering background. But Jeez. long story short, this thing becomes a super synth, right? And it becomes a hallmark sound of the 70s. And what I'm going to do on the CTS um, Twitter page is I'm going to put up uh, some clips of the Tonto synth in um, action, not just in, a, in Stevie Wonder's work, but also mm. in classic R&B throughout the 70s and even the 80s, so you know what it sounds like. Nice. But the Tonto synth... A big piece of the story of this album is the Tonto synth because that is the uh, the most, uh, with the exception of the instruments that uh, Stevie is playing, he's also playing this Tonto synth. 
So uh, you probably, I, I know you're not a lyrics guy, Matt, you say, but it's hard to not hear the social consciousness in this album. I heard uh, the guy getting arrested. Well, there's <laughs> that. jail. There's that, but there's also, there's like, he's Mr. Know-It-All, which is about Richard Nixon, and Stevie uh, Wonder wasn't really, hmm. uh, uh, you know, kind of. Uh, he basically told people that was what it was he about. Did, he he wasn't, didn't vote for Nixon. <laughs> he was not a Nixon voter. I can tell you that. Living for the city was about systemic racism. And that's the one, Matt, that you mentioned with the traffic yep. and the voices and the sirens and stuff. Income inequality and living for the city. Mm-hmm. Um, drug abuse and too high. Um, and when you listen to these lyrics, you can hear it. He's definitely not writing, you know, love, love, love. On I this love, one, like love, loving yes. you. Loving I, yeah. I love loving you when I love it and it's lovely to you. Yeah, that's not this album. <laughs> album the other thing that is amazing about this uh let me add one more thing by the way uh this peaked at number four on the billboard charts it was album of the year at the 16th grammys which was in 1974 another thing though that i did not know about this was that stevie wonder three days after this album came out was involved in an incredibly severe car accident it is one of these things that we hear these stories guys that don't seem like they could be real but here's what happened he was in the car with the friend who was driving, obviously, and he's in the passenger seat. They're behind a truck with logs in it, okay? Oh, God. They're sort of weaving in and out of traffic is how it's described often. And suddenly that truck comes to a stop and logs fall out of the truck, the truck one of which goes through the window and hits Stevie Wonder in the head, Ouch. causing him to be in a coma for five days due to a severe brain contusion. Jesus. He actually recovers fully after a year where he you know, was terrified that he was going to lose his music. There's stories where he's afraid he was going to lose his musical ability. And he was afraid to pick up instruments because he's like, oh, my God, if I can't do this, what is it? You know, yeah. but he, you know, he had medication and stuff like that. There's a ton of brain swelling and stuff. But I mean, Stevie's still around now. Right. And this sure is 1973. Is. Wow. Um, and so, you know, the road back was like a year long process. Um, he lost his sense of smell, but he, he recovered it later. Um, and there's a lot of stories that, you know, he was just terrified that he was going to lose his musical faculty. Of course, in the aftermath of this, you know, he processes and a lot of people say this is where he takes that idea of like love and stuff and adds a real spirituality to it. Remember, this is three days after this album yeah. comes out, so you don't hear it on the Intervisions album. But um, there's like I said, there's an album after this that's about that period of time. And then there's songs in the key of life. So we can kind of revisit that. Um, Wonder was supposed to go on a five week, 20 city tour after this was released. Obviously he cannot do that, but he does play one date in Madison square garden in late March, 1974. There are 21,000 people in the audience and Stevie wonder began the concert by pointing to his scarred forehead, looking up, smiling and says, Thanks to God that I'm alive. And they said it was a real, like, touching moment. I'd like to find that on YouTube as well and post that because I think that would be a fascinating story. But I had no idea about this near-death experience for Stevie Wonder uh, as well. So you always find different stuff. So there's a little bit of the background of this album. Now, Matt has been very vocal about not loving the Stevie Wonder work we've done so far. And Josh has been also neutral to down on the, yeah, (laughs) yeah, vocal, neutral to down, maybe not as vociferously as Matt. I've kind of fallen more on the, um, it's inconsistent, but there's stuff that I like on this. 
I will be interested to hear what you guys think of this album because we can say a lot of things about it and you may not like it, but it certainly doesn't sound like the other two albums that we've done. Matt, I think the floor is yours to start. Did Stevie win you over on this one or is he 0 for 3? Um, actually, is it Josh, is it your turn? Oh, I mean, I can start, sure. I want to hear you first. Okay. Okay. So, well, this is an improvement on the on that other albums um, in that I feel like I liked four of the songs on this album, but he's still doing frustrating things for it for me. <laughs> my my wife said that uh, this album was unbearable, so you can say ouch. <laughs> you can wow. say about that. Yeah, she didn't like it too much. Um, so it it definitely I'm, I appreciate that. The, can uh, I say one thing real quick? Because there's a lot of Stevie Wonder fans that like this album, so I feel yeah. I have to let them know by now. I really like this album. So okay. if there's if these two don't, which I think is where we're trending right now, I will be here to give a passionate defense afterwards. So stay around if you want to hear okay. it. Well, I, I appreciate the fact that he has gone on to talk about social issues. I feel like that is apparent um, from listening to the album, and it brings a freshness and and a much needed boost of energy to his album. And I appreciated that as a result. Um, he still has a tendency to go too long on songs and do the kind of repetition or, or freestyle that he does. Um, he did that in living in the city, but that kind of had a, at a, um, you know, skit or kind of, I don't know what you would call it added. So that, that wasn't really an issue for me. Um, I hear a lot of John legend on this album. I'm sure that this is a big influence on him as a as an artist. And I really liked the um he still has the really good like funky grooves in a lot of the songs and and this album as a whole is more upbeat than his previous albums which I were which I was down on. So I, I like that as well. I feel like Living for the City is probably his first great song since Superstition for me. Um and and then you have and then the other ones that that I really liked were were higher ground and um, I liked all is fair and love I feel like that was an appropriate um, level a uh, ballad <laughs> <laughs> and um, don't you worry about a thing I thought that was kind of a nice like almost Spanish sounding um, beat to it and it's like a I, salsa yeah i thought it was the beginning of the sex in the city theme song at first but I <laughs> yeah. listened to that and it's not but it is a little similar so um it's still it's as far as social issue goes i still like um bill weathers more but um i am this is the highest i've been on stevie wonder although i i still don't feel like he's reached the potential for me that um I'm expecting from him, if that makes sense. Gotcha. Matt. Yeah. I think, I think that, I think this is, um, it's, it's better than the last two. Uh, still not a big fan of it. Uh, Mm. I just, I, I, I only really counted two songs that I really liked, which were higher ground and he's Mr. Know it all. Um, and I, I don't know, man, I, I don't, his, his sounds, those sound effects, the, the Tonto or Toto or whatever, the, 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 (laughs) The, the synthesizer Clavinet. that he's using. Yeah, it's just, it's not doing it for me. It sound, it, to me, it sounds very dated. I, I don't think it's that pleasurable or that interesting of an instrument. I just think it's, I, I really don't like it. And that's probably why I like, you know, um, he's Mr. Know-it-all because it's a more stripped down kind of version of it. And I like that melody a lot too. Um, 
So, this, God, I hated the way this album started. I did not like Too High. The do 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 do. I didn't it's a very like that. Repetitious. Yeah, song. and it's just I, 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 the melody didn't really do anything for me. I think that the chorus was boring. Visions, I wanted to fall asleep. That song actually <laughs> toyed with me because there's a part of that song where it kind of cuts out. I'm like, all right, great, it's over. Nope, he comes right back in two seconds later. I'm like, oh, great, I get more of this, right? Um, and so he's got some moments in here, living for the city. It, you know, it, it, it's it's along the along the longer side, but it's got some. It's got parts that are that I that I think are okay. Golden Lady, okay, but I don't know, guys like this for as high as he's been rated for his for what i was expecting i'm starting to feel like he's the most overrated artist that we've covered on this podcast (laughs) like i just don't get it and i'm glad he's out there i think he's a tremendously talented musician i do like his voice um the fact that he's doing all of this stuff that you know he's doing basically all the instrumentation he's doing the arrangements he's doing the production it doesn't surprise me at all that he went back to school and did you know music theory he's a very impressive artist it's just one of those guys that's just not really doing much for me and when i hear like these albums being the 30th best of all time like the 51st inter- now i don't know about songs in the key of life so i'm still holding out hope that there will be that album out there that i will really grasp on and be like okay here i get it but it's just it's not really happening for me and i just i this album didn't really do a whole lot for me and i was it, it's better than the last two right I, I think that they're getting you know as we go along it's getting better but stevie wonder i just i'm questioning i just don't think he's my cup of tea so um you know there's like i said there's elements there but to me kind of the instrumentation really takes away a lot from it i don't like the ballads i didn't like um all in love is fair unlike josh i thought that was another snooze fest um so i'm sorry people that love stevie wonder i'm glad you do i just don't so um that's that's where i'm at i think i i heard uh the red hot chili peppers version of higher ground before this one so i did that, too that, yeah that's always like colored and I actually like, Where have i heard this song before? and actually <laughs> i remember i saw i saw anthony kiedis do an interview about it like shortly after it came out and that's when he was like it was a stevie wonder song and uh he, he made a joke out of it saying you know stevie called us up and was begging us guys please can you do this song and he's like i don't know stevie we're really busy or something like that and i thought he was joking that it was a stevie wonder song like i did i'm like really stevie wonder did that and then i heard it and i was like oh okay so uh, that's that's a good point i, I the same thing with me josh <laughs> okay right, uh, john why are we wrong go, john? Come to your i've defense. been i've been i've been very patient but like they're wrong on this this is the this yeah. is the first one we hear where it all comes together. Um, I've right. sort of said the, that's fine. You've already said your piece though. So let me tell you why you're wrong on this one. This is what R&B music and soul music in the seventies sounds like when it's at its best. This one goes right up there with pieces of what the Isley brothers and, you know, the smoothness of someone like Teddy Pendergrass singing, you know, it has that wonderful texture of voice in this. The instrumentation is very, I love the fact that he's nodding to a bunch of styles. There's, you know, there's Latin, there's stuff that sounds vaguely Mm -hmm. reggae. There's throwbacks to the the old version of black music, you know, like classic R&B and, you know, the Motown standards. Uh, There's stuff that could could be, you know, R&B musician pieces. I I just love the way this album sounds. It's layered. The second time you listen to it, it sounds even better than the first. I listened to it for a third time because I really liked the difference between the first and the second. And each time I picked up new stuff that he was doing. The stuff that I didn't, 
that didn't connect with me as much in the first and second one. The, the sameness, I think, was what it was, was absent on this one because mm-hmm. he was going in different genres on this one, which kept it very fresh. Yeah, it gave that. it a very um, contemporary feel. I, uh, Josh mentioned John Legend. John Legend. Is ah, like he's your favorite. Dis, dis, discount discount version of what Stevie Wonder's doing here. The songwriting was another thing that was a revelation on this one. I was the one who kind of most was like, you know, the, you know, love, 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 as I mentioned before. And like, sort of like, there was a lot of lyrics like, you know, I'm bad cause I'm sad and we're, you know, glad, you know, and stuff like that. It's like, uh, you know, that's a little schlocky. That is mostly gone here. You know, like Too High has elements of that, but I I disagree with you, Matt. I really like Too High. It gave one thing you guys both didn't mention too is this is a funky album. This mm-hmm. is almost as funky as like a Parliament album. It's just funk throughout it. It makes it just sound vibrant and fresh. Um, he does funk from a different standpoint than Parliament or Isaac Hayes and even like Sly Stone did, right? It's it, There's nothing dark about what Stevie Wonder does. It's like the, an uplifting message, right? And I think the problem with the uplifting message is that when not done the right way, it can sort of seem like it's edgeless, which I think we all sort of recognized at the beginning. But this one was not edgeless to me. This one, the edge came from the avant, the, um, the virtuoso music, that this was the first time that... I really saw it pieced together. There were bits and pieces, um, you know, like uh, Superstition and, you know, When I Fall in Love, you know, that you'd see different pieces of that, right? But this is one where throughout I saw it. So I I really enjoyed this one. I thought it has high re-listenability, which I wouldn't have said about the first two albums that we listened to. And it really does sound a lot like where R&B music was going in the 70s that seems to be a theme this week right like you know Lou Reed you know pretend it where indie rock was going deep purple you know pretend it where you know hard rock was going and and this pretends quite a bit of where R&B music was going not just because the Tonto would become omnipresent and I don't know how much R&B you guys listen to guys like 70s R&B but like you, I mean, you may have listened to it without realizing you have because of all the samples from classic mm-hmm. hip hop that mm-hmm. was there. But like that really was, you know, the sound that you were hearing right in, in those songs was the Tonto synthesizer. Um, and so and I never knew exactly what it was called. But now I'm like, ah, there it is. So this one's a strong thumbs up for me. I mean, it's I liked every album this week and I just I loved it because it was a lot of visionary albums and I knew it was there for Stevie Wonder because there's just too much that I've heard that I enjoyed and you can't make that type of music without having pieces on there. So, um I'll be honest, I'm a I appreciate your honesty and that's why I think this podcast is good. It's very easy to just say you like something because it's highly ranked, you know, and you should like it. So I appreciate that you guys can't do it, but there's there's no phony in this for me. This was the one where it all clicked for me and uh, I would give this a, a strong thumbs up. I I do want to mention that um like the snare drum on this, I always, you know, uh it's there like just every once in a while and I love the sound of that and um yeah, I just strong recommend for me. I'll be the the um, dissenting voice on this one. And if you're trying to wonder what Stevie Wonder's all about, I mean, maybe you'll listen to this and you know be a little bit confused, right? And we haven't done songs in the key yet, which I'll be interested to hear as well, because uh, I only know bits and pieces of that. But I definitely think um, if you are inclined, especially and you like you know soul and R and B music or um, 
you know, some of the artists in the modern day that cite Stevie Wonder as an influence, uh, you definitely want to go here first before you go to Music of My Mind and Talking Book because it's a more complete album. So thumbs up from John. Yeah, I wonder if it's just because he's like more influential in a genre of music that I'm not familiar with. And, and so he doesn't have that kind of founding father type of status. I, I always expect his albums to be like catchier than they than they are or something or I'm thinking that they would have more hits than they do I don't know what it is about it but it like it hasn't hit for me yet so yeah and I mean I wonder if you run into you know because we're gonna especially in the bonus episodes we're gonna run into a lot more soul and R&B in the 70s and there might be versions of it that you like more right but uh and I'll be interested to see if you go, oh, okay. You know, you may not like the albums more, but you'll say, I can see it now. Yeah. I did grow up listening to a ton of 70s R&B and soul. And so there were touch points for me that I was immediately able to recognize. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he kind of bridges the gap between, you know, what we've heard before. And then, you know, what, some people have described Stevie Wonder, right, as like, an amalgamum of, of in many ways, all black music. And there's an argument to be made for that because he's doing seventies black music, right. You know, with there's elements of soul, there's elements of, you know, post Motown, there's funk, Mm -hmm. there's, you know, uh, balladeering. Right. And then he's got elements of like the old rock and roll and R and B. And, you know, it just kind of, it all pieces together and he's sort of the fusion point for all of it, which makes sense because the dude's been, you know, performing since the early 60s, right? So he's right. nine and now he's there. He's been in contemporary black music, right? Mm-hmm. From, you know, just after Little Richard, you know, Chubby Checker, right? You know, that next early genre, he's there putting out hits and he's still here in 73, you know, at the forefront. So he never really left. So he was always there, right? So it makes sense that he would sort of be the perfect troubadour for that. So it's, I mean, he's also the only child star you know, actor that we've talked about that has been well, able his, to start from a child and continue through adulthood. Well, his career is remarkably similar to Michael Jackson's when you think mm-hmm. about it, you know, like all the way down to like he starts a child performer, churns out hits, right? Kind of, you know, off the wall, right? Is a little bit of his beginning yep. period before he blows up, you know, in Stevie Wonder's case, it would be this album and Songs in the Key, right? For, you know, Michael Jackson, it's probably Thriller and... uh you know, bad, but the, the music industry was able, you were able to move a little slower at that point, as opposed to just relying, you know, on plowing out the album. And, you know, and I, I, one thing I also want to mention too, is that, you know, albums for a lot of black music in the sixties were around, but they were not necessarily the currency. And we've talked about that, right? It was about live performances and stuff like that. This is really, you know, with the Marvin Gaye album, we did what's going on and the Stevie wonder stuff right here. This is the beginning of like, um, black artists like the album concept you know really catching on um and and being more of like in the mainstream there so i don't want to say it wasn't there but you know it took a little bit longer than sort of like the bands and putting out an album right and you know that being around the album and of course by the mid-70s we have a genre literally called album-oriented rock right so it was totally mainstream but yeah so just some stuff i want to put in there Hmm. No, mm-hmm. he's definitely got the um, the funk is 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 in a lot of songs here, and I I do like that. I think it's just, I I really think the instrumentation, that like the stuff that he's doing, the sounds, it's just really it's it's kind of annoying to me. Um, I mean, I get why why some people might like it. It's just I 
I don't know, man. I'm waiting for that Bill Withers moment, you know, like where, you know, when I, that's something that I hear that I'm yeah. like, wow, I didn't well, really know a whole lot about that. And, you know, it, and it, that music meant so much more to me and just it, it was much more. Um, I don't know. I, 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 well, I felt I, that a lot more than I did this, which is interesting because this is way some of the stuff is way more upbeat. You know, this is this is it. And, and maybe even poppier, you know, than what do Bill think, Withers was doing. Do you think it's because like so? I, I like I love those two Bill Withers albums as well, but he was doing simple stuff, right? He was doing simple mm-hmm. arrangement, not bad, simple. You know, what I mean, he was doing simple in a really pleasing way, and yeah. you know, it takes talent to do that. But Wonders doing more stuff. I I think I want to go back to the idea that maybe it's not like a heritage of music you listen to, right? Because no, no, you, not, right. no. you like the equivalent of the complexity of what Stevie Wonder's doing in the frameworks that you're familiar with, yes. Matt, whether it be prog rock or the Beatles, right? You know, ahead of their time sure. and stuff like that. But in this case, sort of like the complexity sounds foreign to you, right? You know, whereas yeah. the sim- simplistic stuff might sound more like the music you're more familiar with. Like, I know you really like the Aretha Franklin stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And in some ways, you know, she's doing the same thing, just singing, you know what I mean? Like about different stuff. I w- Like I said, that's where I'm going to be fascinated as we continue on, right? You know, to see as you listen to more, right? Is there an evolution on that? Or is it just going to be a long period of time where you're getting your reps, right? And it still doesn't click with you, but yeah. you'd have your reps. So you get it right. And will you have like a velvet underground moment with me where it's like, ah, oh, it all comes together. And now I'm not in that, but I can appreciate everything else. Right. And Josh almost had that with like kraut rock last week. Mm-hmm. Right. Where he's like, mm, okay, I'm starting to see the pieces come together now. And it's making more sense. I wonder if that'll be, for you, Matt. With yeah, the, I, I wouldn't the... mind that because I you're right. I do like I like intricate, you know, complicated, interesting, you know, arrangements in music. Um, but maybe yeah, but it's just it's it, and that's certainly happening here. I'm not disputing that. But I I, I need I need something to hang my hat on that kind yeah. of you know that gets me mm-hmm. you know where where I need to go. Um, and I didn't really I didn't really feel that here, and I don't. I don't know. I, I want to be open-minded. I, I really going to want to, it's almost like I feel, I'm going to feel pressure to like songs in the key of life <laughs> no, you know, because I'm like, I gotta not... like this, but I, I'm not going to fake it. Right. But I, yeah. it's an inch. It's, it's been interesting listening. And it was, I got a little bit of that with this and I'm like, all right, let's see what happens. And then I don't know, right off the bat, I think I got a real bad taste in my mouth of those first two songs. Like I was just like, really? Come on. I will give you this. It's certainly more varied, right. Than, than, than the last uh, two yeah. albums. Um, both musically and lyrically, although I care more about the the music. Um, and I, I appreciate the fact that he's doing different things. It's just, I was like, okay, I just, I don't think uh, I'm there yet. Um, and I don't, you're right. I don't know if, will I get there? Who knows? But, um, you know, the guy's mad talented. There's no doubt about that. And I'm glad that he exists because, you know, clearly he's striking a chord with a lot of people, right? And he struck a chord with a lot of people that did a lot of music after the fact, probably a lot of that, that I that I really enjoy, artists that I really do like. So this is why I'm glad that even though there might be artists out there that I don't particularly care for or I don't get necessarily, somebody else is getting it, something out of it. And then they're passing that along and just going down the line and, you know, kind of changing it, making it their own. And that's what's great about it. So um, good on him just it's not 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 yet man not there yet gotcha no i i think it's important to keep it honest because the integrity is where people know that what you know theoretically what that's we're what, saying is what, what we C- believe cts yeah. stands for integrity 
Integrity, exactly. It's also, it's very easy to say you like everything and then post stuff up on YouTube, right? But, you know, <laughs> we run the risk of putting up, hey, we hate this album, you know what I mean? And people are not looking for that in their takes. So, mm. um, you know, we also will be the first to say that we are not ourselves skilled musicians. So there's going to be things that sometimes we're just talking about how it sounds to us, right? As opposed right. to the other layers. And, you know, that's part of what being a fan is. And, you know, we, we accept those limitations. But, uh, I do appreciate the varied taste, and you know we're not going to like everything we listen to. So we'll see if Stevie changes Matt's mind on the fourth one. But hopefully, Matt, you don't feel pressure because it shouldn't be that way. It should be just listen to it and see where you're at. But we'll have more to talk about with Stevie next time uh, we cover him for the last time um, with Songs of the Key of Life in a few weeks. But uh, I think that's going to probably put a bow on this episode, isn't it, guys? Um, do you want to bumper what we're doing next week? What are we doing next week? Ooh, okay. So, Josh, you are doing Harvest by Neil Young. Oh, okay. We're, I, I didn't know if we were back to to uh, cold, listen, hot takes. No, nope, trying to catch up, that. Josh. Uh, we're doing gotcha. one more. Yep. And uh, Matt is going to do Band on the Run by Paul uh, McCartney. <laughs> and Paul McCartney and Wings. We're going to go Boy. flying. And speaking of people that were ahead of their time, although maybe not the thing, I'm going to be doing Another Green World by Brian Eno. Um, and boy, everything's starting to come together now with Krautrock and Ambient Sounds and David Bowie and Iggy Pop. And, you know, this is the last guy, right, that we have talked you in about. 70, you're in 75 already next week. I am in Jeez. 1975 next week. So You I didn't even gen- do a 19. You didn't do it. You had no 1974 albums. You know what I am, Matt? I am He's on the podcast, time. the personification of what <laughs> yeah. I was talking about earlier today. I'm introducing you ahead of time when you're... As good as Neil Young and Paul McCartney are, right? I'm speeding ahead to like what the world sounds like three years later. So, yep. yeah, yeah, so it's interesting. We're kind of we're getting, we're starting to separate here. Mm-hmm. Well, Josh, God, is... the, the week after that, we'll be doing Nick Drake, another Genesis, and then I'm all the way up to '76 with yeah, Boston. you're at '76, yeah. yeah. Boston from the Nick Drake album is four years, but feels like 400. So, yeah, pretty much, yeah. So. All right, guys. Well, I'll go ahead and sign us off this week for uh, Matt and Josh. This is John. Thanks so much for listening. Check us out on at Combing the on Twitter, uh, the Combing the Stacks uh, website, uh, YouTube page, excuse me. And uh, there will be a website eventually. But uh, we're also available on uh, 14 different platforms as of right now. And tell your friends about us. We'd love to have a follow on uh, either Twitter or YouTube as well. Uh, And feel free to shoot us an email at combingthestacks at gmail.com. Have a wonderful rest of your week and a great weekend. The Combing the Stacks podcast is hosted by John, Josh, and Matt, who thank you as always for listening to the show. We'd like to thank our podcast host, Anchor, for hosting our full archive of shows. We'd also like to thank CleanFeed for providing our audio and Audacity for providing the editing software we use for the creation of the show. Combing the Stacks can be found on the following 10 platforms and counting. Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Breaker, CastBox, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, Spotify, and Verbal. Viewer feedback can be sent to combingthestacks at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter, at CombingThe, and on YouTube by searching for Combing the Stacks and throwing us a follow. A website is coming on May 1st, 2021, and we'll make sure to let you know where to go.